Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome back to Filmography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I'm the film editor at Consequence of Sound and the host of this particular program. And for this, the final episode of Filmography, Stanley Kubrick, I'd like to introduce my guests for this week. This is Mike Rothman, President Editor-in-Chief of Consequence of Sound. Glad to be here talking about some of my favorite films from one of my favorite directors. And uh, this is Blake Goble, senior writer with Consequence of, uh, Consequence of Sound. Conca Clunk of Sound. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, long story short, super stoked to be here to talk about some of my all-time favorites as well, including the film that I saw in my brother's dorm when I was just six years old and had no idea what to make of it. Uh, but now we have some way to make something of it, so... Uh, glad to be here on a Sunday morning, wired instead of tired like last time. It's amazing that um, your brother dragged you to his dorm to make you watch Barry Lyndon as a six-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> um, you gotta see this movie. <laughs> dude, dude, check this out. Like That's how all of his emails begin at this point uh, in life, but yeah. So, as always, you can find filmography on facebook at facebook.com slash filmography podcast you can find me on twitter at d suzanne mayer specifically and you can leave us a rating on itunes and or Podchaser. please leave the ratings we love you dearly for it again this is the final episode of our summer session filmography stanley kubrick We've talked about most of his body of work, and now we're going to talk about some of the most ambitious films he ever put out throughout his career. So, you know, on that nice, easygoing level, let me open this <laughs> week's discussion by posing a question. We're talking about human extremes this week, and this is a little more nebulous than some of our other episodic themes, so let me expand on that just a little bit. We've talked over the past few weeks about the ways in which Kubrick is able to examine humanity under extreme duress, whether it's a marriage in turmoil, whether it's man during wartime. And here you see some very interesting interpolations of the idea of an extreme. And I hate that I keep saying extreme because I'm not trying to like create X Games vibes on the last <laughs> episode of filmography. This episode brought to you by Doritos. But be that as it may, um, I think there's something really interesting in the way that Kubrick understands man when pushed to its absolute limits. And in very different ways across the three films we're discussing today, we're going to see that. Now, today's topics of discussion are, at long last, 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey, 1975's Barry Lyndon, and 1980's The Shining. Now, to bring it in, I want to 
start off by asking the two of you, what compels the Kubrick protagonist? What drives them, particularly as seen through the movies we're discussing today? Folly. Uh, no, I've been totally copping out because that's the same thing I said in the last episode. But like, <laughs> seriously, it, it really, um, Barry Lyndon, Shining, 2001 Space Odyssey, kind of like it's just, it's naivete, man's folly, uh, kind of like the assumption that everything's going to go okay, slash kind of acting in self-interest. Um, I mean, I'm painting in broad strokes trying to synthesize it right here, but folly, folly is like, uh, that's kind of my, uh, you know, cop out for all these movies generally. Yeah, I think it's hard once you kind of throw in 2001 a little bit, though, just because 2001 seems to be such a a broad purpose film. I feel like the themes in there are always just constricted to man, but life itself almost, you know, because it just seems as very it just seems like a meditation on just where we are in the universe and, you know, how the universe expands, how it evolves. But, you know, I, I agree with Blake in the sense that I think it does definitely show I mean, especially with the introduction of Hal in 2001, there is this assumption that things are going to be all right because you have this perfect computer that's been tested only by mankind. So I think that does kind of fit into the narrative. I also, you know, ego for sure fits in that, obviously, but especially when you talk talk about Torrance and this idea that, you know, he's right, if he's not wrong, like he can't admit that he's wrong. I mean, I guess even when he does, there's some sort of like venom to him that still doesn't acknowledge that he is in the wrong. I mean, he's an abusive alcoholic, uh, but he has like a spite to it. So, and then with Barry Lyndon, I mean, he's just so naive the entire movie of what he's actually doing to literally everyone around him. Uh, but I think at, even at a certain point, he does acknowledge that and still keeps going. So, But I think another interesting connecting thread here that we're all kind of dancing around and we're probably going to return to this idea a few times throughout the episode is hubris. And male mm-hmm. hubris I was going to say reach exceeding grasp, yeah, as I wanted to spitball off that, because, like, all these guys kind of, well, you know, human extreme, the notion of trying to reach into the, the arena of greatness or kind of misunderstanding what the task at hand is or what we're trying to uh, grasp and comprehend within these films. But again, we're speaking in abstract and can kind of delineate, yeah. Well, because to one degree or another, in and again, in very mm-hmm. different respects, there's going to be a lot of apples and oranges in this episode in particular, <laughs> yeah. because these are wildly disparate films, even by Kubrick's standards. But in all of them, not only do you have reach exceeding grasp again, but you have this sense, going back to your point, Mike, of absolute conviction. These people mm-hmm. believe that whatever they are doing is their divine purpose mm-hmm. or however you want to parse that out. There is nothing inhibiting them from chasing this regardless of morality or even indeed time and space. And I almost kind of parallel that with the actual production itself. I mean, granted, all of Kubrick's productions at some point followed a line of just obsession and perfection and just this almost insanity uh, to the the standards of what Hollywood filmmaking is, which is why he's a genius. But I, I think like especially these three kind of speak to that sort of those I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to do something that's even crazier or even go bigger than I need to be, which I think in the return actually obviously delivered. But when you look at it on paper and when there, you know, there were just blueprints and you're going into this movie, I'm sure everyone involved in the production 
probably saw a lot of commonalities between Kubrick and his leads in these movies, <laughs> or at least the actual ambition that's, you know, flooded in these films, especially with 2001. I mean, you know, when he's, he's just, I mean, he's just going for, I mean, he's literally doing stuff that nobody's ever done before on film. And, it's funny. Yeah. These are know. almost all famous production films, whether it's 2001 breaking like ridiculous ground in terms of technical production, the shining and like the length duration and yeah. borderline psychosis of production. Exactly. <laughs> and Barry Lyndon's like fetishistic, obsessive patience within its production, like that it was spun out of so many failed desired products to do a period piece and then mm-hmm. when he finally got one he's like we're gonna do it big <laughs> D- despite like the most nominal plotting of these three movies in my estimation yeah well and in all three cases these are movies done big which we'll talk oh, yeah. a little bit more about through the back half of the show but i think that's a good way to just jump straight into the films for this week and working chronologically you know we're gonna take a nice unambitious start to this podcast <laughs> and jump right into talking about 2001 a space odyssey Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. Uh, We're 17 years late, 16 years late, guys. I feel really bad saying this now. Should we be worried that everyone's going to think we're a little dated? (laughs) um, I mean, Pan Am. (laughs) Right. The Howard Johnson on the moon hasn't opened yet. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now... In the case of 2001, you have Kubrick again working out of the studio system through MGM this time. And this was, after four years, this was a follow-up to Dr. Strangelove, which is really interesting to think about. Because for all of Mm. the interesting experiments Kubrick had done up to that point, which we've talked about extensively over the past few weeks, 2001 was once again a staggering leap forward in much the same way that from his early work up to Spartacus Mm -hmm. and then up to Strangelove and Lolita in their own respects. I mean, no, it's like he's kind of shedding the confines of traditional Hollywood studio filmmaking in a lot of respects for this. There's it's very informal. It's almost abstract. Uh, He originally had a working score from Alex North and then completely dropped it in favor of all the classical, like a lot of, deft moves on this one yeah i mean when you actually think about just the conception of this film and how he conceived it with arthur c clark and Mm -hmm. was basically like you know who if you look into his history basically almost detailed the future technology for nasa and for a variety of systems whether they're satellites or the way that we were doing navigational systems absolute genius and for them to kind of get together and say yeah, let's make a let's make a story about the creation of uh, the uh, life. <laughs> let's Did, just uh, do this, like you know. I mean, it's just. Well, and Did you see is... the Danny Boyle Steve Jobs where they had a clip of him at the beginning? Best part of the movie where he's like, "Computers will fix and ruin everything," and I'm like, "Damn, he was smart." Yeah, I mean, it's the there's so much to this film that mm-hmm. you know when we, we we talk about what it was like back then. I mean, I always talk to my father who um, at the time was, I think, teaching science fiction in college, but uh, or maybe it was a few years afterwards, but he always tells me that sitting in the theater that opening night, like literally no one moved at the end. It was just like, what the fuck did we just watch? I mean, at the time, it's like, you know, nowadays you can just go hop on Reddit and, you know, Twitter <laughs> and like debate about it with everyone else. But at the time, it was just, it was a total coffee shop movie. I mean, it was just basically like, you are going to be discussing this forever. And did you ever hear 
the story about Rock Hudson walking out? At the <laughs> no. premiere? Rock Hudson was at the premiere and like walked out halfway screaming, what the fuck is this shit? What am I supposed to be looking at right now? Oh, and just God. was like, I have had it. No, no disrespect to Rock Hudson. I oh, like yeah. him, but... Um. So... It's interesting that you mentioned the whole theatrical facet of the film because we'll again touch on this. I'm going to leave some of the formal stuff for the back half just because this is a movie we could talk about exhaustively for hours on end. But in the case of 2001 as a sensory movie going experience, I do want to touch on that briefly because recently here in Chicago where we're recording filmography, the Music Box Theater recently showed the restoration for the 50th anniversary of the film on 70 millimeter. And one of the things that really stood out to me was that the way that sound as a function of spectacle is deployed in this movie is so disarming because you go to your average AMC or your Regal where there's like one projectionist running 25 screens and sometimes you get like a weirdly quiet screening of Avengers Infinity War or something like that. (laughs) There's, There's generally less of a regard for some of the really brass tacks facets of the cinematic experience that seeing something like 2001 really casts into sharp relief. Because this is studio filmmaking, sure, but this is studio filmmaking operating on a functional level that is still staggering through any era of Hollywood. Even during a time when directors were having money thrown at them hand over fist to do weird stuff like this, this is still a thunderous achievement by any standard. That, that's literally what I was thinking about the entire time watching this film, is just how the hell did they ever make this at the time that it was made, and just how much money would have taken today and how unrealistic it would actually look today compared to back then. I mean, it just seems as if like he had this just black hole worth of money that just was able to do everything. Because, I mean, you watch this film, and... I mean, look, I'm going to gush about this movie because this is I I think this is the greatest film of all time. I really do. I'm just going to put that out there first because then you're going to understand why I'm just really not going to have that many imperfections with this movie. But my my thing about this is that it's 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 such a timeless movie that I don't think that I I think every filmmaker that wants to get into like you, you mentioned, like with science fiction or even just filmmaking in general, like big productions. I think this is always going to be the bar. And I and I don't think that every like that that they're going to try to you know surpass. And I don't think anyone ever will. I really don't. I just think that there's something about this. It, it was just like the the right melding of technology that was able to kind of create something that that was still using effects that looked practical and without leaning too hard onto the CGI. I just I just think the the thing that I that's astounding watching it now is how it still looks better than anything that's currently there. And that's a feeling I've had ever since I've watched it since the 90s. I mean, since the late 80s, maybe. I mean, it's just... I was going to say, you compare it to some of the epics of the era, like maybe Kubrick's own Spartacus, you look at Cleopatra from 20th Century Fox, other comparable epics, I guess, with size and scale, but not necessarily like critical thinking, vision, or focus. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like we see it in Infinity War in the sense that like set dressing, if you accumulate enough, it will be viewed as epic. Whereas like 2001 actually has some philosophical leanings, some actual big ideas, and an actual focus of vision. Yes, I'm totally in the gush camp with you. Yeah. Uh, Because it's like, oh, no wonder it's so preferable to when people are spending hand over fist to just give you stuff, accumulate content within the frame. Whereas Kubrick gives you a clear, like, set space pod against the vast eeriness of space. 
but it feels epic in the implications mm-hmm. as well as the presentation of it. And it, it doesn't have to say it is, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, it, that's the thing. It's like even, even nowadays when you have like, I mean, I think the biggest difference when you could see it is, okay, so mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan, who did the remastering for this, is considered our, you know, our, our big blockbuster avant-garde filmmaker that's, you know, considered to be the, the, the cream of the crop. Then you watch like Interstellar, which is his re- response to 2001, and it's literally like you know space for dummies. You know, and then they have it does like, so much right and so much wrong. Exactly, but, and like yeah. I mean, could you imagine the entire space sequence or this the the entire Star Child sequence narrated? I mean, that's <laughs> this movie doesn't give you things as much as as it sh- as it could. Isn't and it, it was the greatest the space odyssey I ever had. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I really I wanted to loop back around a little bit because in all of this discussion we've sort of alighted acknowledging the actual structure of the film, yeah. which is kind of even by modern standards radically bordering on anti-narrative. Yeah. Because you have the opening set piece in the luxuriously branded space station, then you have the sequence on the isolation of the moon. And both of these following, of course, probably the most important prologue in film history. You move straight on into the ship with Hal and then on to the infinite voyage. This is a movie told almost in chapters with staggering time jumps, including, as we'll touch on in the back half of the show, probably the most important edit in the history of motion picture filmmaking. And this is a film that does not offer up answers it is interested in a curiosity well beyond the boundaries of human imagination which looping back into this episode's subject matter a little bit is one of the boldest things about 2001 where it reduces its actors who are all uniformly solid but are ultimately (laughs) treated as set dressing by the film because they are ciphers they are audience stand-ins and more or less blank slates onto which Kubrick can express these ideas about where this world will move beyond us. What's interesting, like only four years before this, like the Big Bang Theory, that that actually like really had some movement uh, because there was a lot of, they actually were able to confirm that there was like the cosmic microwave background radiation was was like a big component of the universe, which kind of gave some credence to this idea that Space is just this long, moving, evolving thing. And that's the sense that you get watching 2001. It's almost that's the character of the movie is just time itself. Like We are one phase of humanity. Yeah. and not I mean, humanity is even probably simplifying it. We are one phase of living existence. Yeah. And eventually we are going to be outmoded by that which is coming next. Yeah. Which See, is both like grand and beautiful yeah. and horrifying mm-hmm. in its implications. So I want to totally steal Professor Kligerman. I took a sci-fi class in college. Apologies, everybody can hit me with a book later. <laughs> uh, but um, when we studied 2001, one of the things that kind of struck out, like I totally was in this camp. Uh, I'm still in the camp of like it moves at its own pace and it kind of presents abstract ideas. Until I realized Earth kind of started thinking, maybe there's a practical implication. Why are we leaping so far into space? And I'm thinking, oh, Klagerman nailed it. The metaphorical implications of human progress potentially going too fast. If we're learning how to kill through a monolith, through specific means, whatever, and we're leaping into human progress, and then we're trying to go beyond into space and beyond when potentially we're not ready to do this. That implication, that's the thing that kind of staggers me and scares the hell out of me because it's like maybe we don't want to go where we don't know where we're going as of yet. Maybe we need to prep unless we have to be thrust into uh, into 2001 and those spaces. So, like, I do think that, like, 
the editing and speed implications. Like they both abstract, but and as well as totally applicable and useful within this telling of the story. Absolutely, yeah. Well, and I think again, it's an idea where even at the end of the film, Care Doulet, who is the ostensible protagonist of the majority of, especially the back half of the movie, particularly the post-intermission sequence, which for those of you who haven't seen the film exhibited in its original form, the intermission is immediately after Hal is watching the two scientists talk and reading their lips which is uh his fault because uh, they, they actually were spun around before and he he literally i was re-watching it again this time and he literally asked how to turn them around so that they face him which is just like if they just would have stayed facing their way and it's tying back into our core theme of the week it will always be human error that yeah. <laughs> drags us to ruin which if there is one commonality between our three films we can kind of establish that it's at every step, it is the beastly nature of man or the arrogance of man or something innate and incurable within man from the very, very earliest days of the existence of man. The film asks us to bear witness to not just the dawn of man, but to then the moment at which man develops savage impulses. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the more important implication. It's not just watching the origins of humanity. It's watching the origins of humanity, going back to your point, pushing itself somewhere it's not yet prepared to go because it wants yeah. to go there and because there's a notion of convenience and probably more importantly, right? I mean, of power. Not to nerdy like chalkboard talk, but who developed Hal? Humans. Who yeah. gave him his, his sense of like overconfidence and hubris? Mm -hmm. Human designers, developers, programmers. Who created these spaceships that inevitably do fail? Man. Right. And actually, uh, if we're talking about modern films attempting to engage with 2001's ideas, one yeah. of the more interesting to me is actually Alex Garland's film Ex Machina, which I bring oh, up yeah. because in a very different fashion, it gets at some of those same questions of what is a create what is a, an android robot whatever create a humanoid creation if not a mere reflection of the impulses of the person that created it mm -hmm. and i love that you say impulses because eventually when that movie spoiler alert shows its cards into like the more base impulses and casual conversations like let's be honest we're making the robots to sleep with them and because we're bored and lonely but uh <laughs> and, and in the case of 2001 yeah. it's the arrogance to think that you yes. can create a human equivalent intelligence that will remain servile to you, which is the subject of so much sci-fi over yeah. the years, yeah. particularly American sci-fi, which we can read all kinds of implications into that maybe are beyond the purview of this episode. Oh, thanks to 2001 and Terminator. I still want to kill every robot I see, but well, that's my problem, not yours. Well, I mean, just think, <laughs> think about every major science fiction film that came in the aftermath of this. I mean, Alien, you have you know ian holmes character who literally is just how basically there and there's really a technophobia post this like demon seed the house that tries to impregnate julie christie in 1970 yeah. all those dumb like Crichton movies from the mid 80s like run away like, with like robot cars trying to kill people the terminator which is world like yes westworld yeah. absolutely yeah and not I the mean, shitty tv show I mean, <laughs> even even like when you look at the abyss, which is very has yes. a lot of ties to this. It's humanity that's actually the ones that's at fault, and like you know, they're they're the one they're the enemy, and they're the ones that's created this problem. And I mean, there, there's it just seems like this was its own Big Bang Theory <laughs> uh, for filmmaking itself, with it science fiction itself. I mean, like every 
major science fiction film has ties to this movie. Well, and it's one, of, it's one of the few cases where you can look at a film and say that it truly in, reinvented the way we conceive of film as yeah. a medium. Yeah. Because sonically, visually, those things will come back to. But even dramatically, this is a film that asks you to follow a really radical visual language. Mm -hmm. Which, do you ever read, and this is so, like, inside reference, but do you ever read the Roger Ebert review of uh, Pitch Black from 2000? I think it opens with something like, oh, look, another sci-fi movie that opens with a spaceship lingering in space post-2001. Anyway, here's a dumb movie for yeah. you. I mean, because think of it, Star Wars does it also. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's but at least it does it with style. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and one thing that's really interesting, going back... I'm I'm trying to resist talking about form, but with a film like this, it's really difficult. Yeah. But one of the really interesting aspects of the recent restoration was that you could see a lot of the lines between the matte paintings yes. and the mm -hmm. foregrounding. You could see some of the compositing work that was done in a way that's been digitally smoothed over over the years. Which is crazy. I, I've seen this in a lot of formats from VHS to I've seen a prior 70 millimeter print, which we can compare notes later. But like that looked cleaner than this. Yeah. This looked kind of, I don't know how else to say, a little shittier than most of the prints I've seen. But it also looked like it looked like a film yeah. that you can actually see where it was pushing form forward in very specific and particular ways. And yes. I think that's really important to the experience of taking in 2001 in a lot of respects, because you get this more authentic feel for just what this film was able to do, the specific ways in which it was able to capture the imagination and you and it's funny because you can see in some of the earlier movies mm -hmm. him finding little flourishes of this. Um, some of the elliptical storytelling can be found in his noir work. You can find a lot of his grand panoramas in his eye for 70 millimeter widescreen composition evidenced in Spartacus. And even in Dr. Strangelove, you have some of the same satiric political ideas about I mean, that's arguably his most potent example of a film about male hubris destroying the universe oh we're just falling back in the ants on the farm bit aren't we Kubrick <laughs> just like looking at uh, people as ants well and it's not i wouldn't say it's ants even <laughs> though humanity has never been smaller than it is in 2001 yeah. because i think mike you make a really good point i think it's a film very much driving at the notion of people have that innate urge within themselves to conquer. I mean, Manifest Destiny is a particularly American idea, but there is also something very mortal about that. In our limited time on this planet or in this universe, we want to extend out beyond ourselves. But the movie also carries some really terrifying implications about what can happen when you get there. But at least Frank Poole uh, gets to survive in 3001, uh, the novel that Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke would Okay, that write. was the quick question I wanted to ask. Have you guys actually read the books? I've read all of them, yeah. You read all, okay. Uh -huh. I've never read 2001, and I simply refuse to at See, this point. Well, the thing is, my, my father insisted that I read it before I watched good, the movie. Good. Oh, uh, really? Only because, yeah, so that, I mean, because the whole, the whole, I mean, the whole template of the book is actually in... Is 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 right there. I mean, you read it and you understand yeah. all the science and themes behind it and everything. And then I just became obsessed with the series <laughs> after that. So like 2010 was great. 2061 is yeah. is is just basically a thrill ride, which I think Tom Hanks was trying to do for a while. And then 3001 is just basically Arthur C. Clarke being like, "Well, I predicted a lot of stuff with 2001. <laughs> Let's see if I can get things right in thousand years from now." So it's crazy, but the premise is essentially like they find Frank Poole's body and they really? resuscitate him um, and. 
he lives on this spaceship that is just is beyond comprehension how big it is. Like he literally goes like rendezvous with Rama kind of thing. Ex- yeah, okay. a little bit like that. Right. And and um and I mean there's there's situations in that 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 are so hard to comprehend what's going on. Like he's like, yeah, I went hang gliding, but it wasn't a simulation. It was actually a canyon inside this like. You're probably much more practical than me because I've never read the book, nor have I, I have no intention of reading the books because I've enjoyed like the 25 year struggle of like kind of slowly piecing this movie together because it actually retains some of the magic and mystery to me. Oh yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll talk about favorite shots later, but when I tried to watch a YouTube like tutorial on how to recreate effects from this movie, I had to shut it off because I'm like, nope, nope, you're ruining it. Yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't want to know anything Uh, about that stuff. Like, (laughs) but I, I would totally, I got to read the books then. Yeah. The books are really interesting. I mean, especially, especially the first one, just because Mm -hmm. I mean, the two of them collaborated on it, so it's just like um, they—you could see where you know parts were, especially mm-hmm. for the film. But then you could see where Arthur C. Clarke was just taking over the chapter and just yeah. be like, "Okay, I'm going to absolutely just put all the science in behind this." So there's a lot of practicality to it, and especially with when you start talking about like the creation, you know, like the dawn of man and, and that stuff. So, but there's also a wit to the apathy that these people have to like their own ingenuity, the same way that we have like a certain amount of apathy to the magic that is cellular telephone technology, mm-hmm. modern technology at large. And yeah. then you have people not giving a shit about what their space sludge is when they get on a Pan Am flight for probably 20 bucks in the science fiction. Yeah. But there is something super relatable to like human achievements followed immediately by human apathy. Oh, absolutely. Well, isn't that neat? Well, and in a weird way, that apathy sort of engenders that drive to keep pushing and pushing and pushing in turn. And Can't you people see how great this is? Like, no, we can't anymore. And if we're going to talk about humanity pushing itself beyond its station that's a great way to jump into 1975's barry linden and by these wonderful circumstances barry was once more free again and began his professional work as a gamester resolving thenceforward and forever to live the life of a gentleman which is the Stanley Kubrick movie that you watch as a teenager and don't get, and then you watch it when you're knocking on 30 and you think is the greatest thing he ever directed. Are you mocking my first watch of it last year? Because that was like my favorite first watch of 2017. Well, and I I watched it after years in preparation for this episode, and I was also pretty ecstatic about it. Oh, so, man, I did a- so for the unfamiliar, Barry Lyndon is set in 1700s Ireland and follows Ryan O'Neill as Redmond Barry, because before Barry Lyndon is Barry Lyndon, he is first Redmond Barry, the mid-1700s Irish equivalent of a small-time hustler. He is arrogant. He is often dismissive to people. He is a war deserter. There is very little of value about him. Yet, he feels himself so entitled to a better station in life that he manages to marry his way up into high society to earn a court title and then subsequently in the film's second post-intermission act, which has maybe my favorite act title of anything I've ever seen, Containing an account of the misfortunes and disasters which befell Barry Lyndon. I know this is like the definition of droll, this movie. I'm so yeah. excited. This movie is droll, and that's a great place to start because Barry Lyndon is probably one of the most emblematic examples you can happen upon 
of what the 1970s were like in Hollywood <laughs> because Stanley Kubrick was able to go to Warner Brothers in the wake of A Clockwork Orange, a film which is still banned in a couple countries to this day, and ask them for so much money that he could make a lavish period piece shot entirely in natural light for 300 about, days <laughs> for 300 days about Irish gentry. And they said, yeah, OK. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, at this point, Cooper can pretty much do whatever he wants. But I think that was always the case after 2001, especially, though. Right. I mean, it's, it had I mean, at that point. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like, OK, just go, go. Which a- is amazing. After because he's not considered a box office draw by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Like he's a name. He's yeah. a respectable Academy Award nominated worthy name, but never a huge draw. Never, no. never a huge draw, though. 2001 itself was a pretty rousing success. Like Nolan had to make 500 million to a billion to get creative control at Warner Brothers. And Clint Eastwood still has creative control at Warner Brothers because he's accumulated like three billion dollars over years. But there's like talk of them trying to get rid of him at this point. Is there really? Supposedly. But it's, I think it has to do a little bit with age and like the rumor that he kind of just is a sleepwalker on set but that's a whole different conversation warner brothers talent that's uh yeah. how you, well that's, that's where the money's at and warner has long proven itself willing to throw money at really interesting artistic projects yeah and from like the justice league <laughs> from a clock we're going 300 onward, million the sunken cost fallacy right yeah. there yeah God. By the time the 70s roll around, from mm-hmm. Clockwork or John Word, Kubrick will work with Warner for the rest of his career. And Barry Lyndon, in its weird way, may be one of the most ambitious of his projects there. Because for all the transgression of A Clockwork Orange and Eyes Wide Shut in its own way in a different era, for all of the difficulty of The Shining in reinventing horror language, as we'll get to in a few minutes, <laughs> and for all of Clockwork Orange's and for all the Full Metal Jackets anti-war meditation, Barry Lyndon is a three. I'm going to run this back again. A three-hour film <laughs> about a man hustling his way into and then failing his way out of the Irish gentry because of his own arrogance. I love this movie. I also don't know how it exists. Yeah, I, I really don't either. It's it, just rewatching it the last few days. It's just like, who the hell? went and saw this movie back in the 70s. I mean, I get like, I get that, that, you know, obviously 70s filmmaking is much different and it's actually my favorite era, but this is definitely like Kubrick almost, I feel like he's almost trolling <laughs> like like the studios at this point, like with this film in, in some ways. I, I mean, I get, it's, look, it's a great genius film, but it does feel very just, okay, we're going to stretch this shot out for well, maybe 10 more seconds than it needs, than it absolutely needs to be, but it still works. It just feels like this is his, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a musician that's the, that has done um, something similar to this, or like that experimental album. Kenny G playing a note for 45 minutes? <laughs> yeah, something uh, like that, right? No, this, that's a terrible comparison because no, no, this God, is more no. fun. No, this is definitely more fun. It's actually a lot more... Uh, comedic than I remembered it being. And I yeah. think a lot of it has to do with what you were saying before, Don, is like, the, it's totally the age thing. I mean, it's just, you see, you, the perspective of it is so much different because you take him at a literal level when you're watching it as a kid, but then you look at it now and it's almost as funny as Dr. Strangelove. I mean, oh, abs- I would absolutely agree. And I'm glad you brought that point up because Barry Lyndon, depending on how deadpan your sense of humor is, mm-hmm. I would argue is hysterical yeah, yeah. because it is a film that is very much making an example out of poor Ryan O'Neill for the entirety of its runtime that is looking at its protagonist again over three plus hours 
as this hapless fuck, for lack of more eloquent phrasing. Almost always framed at a distance, with a detachment, super wide, kind of just like placing him into the field of play throughout the course of the movie. And, like, if if I can back up, too, I think um, one of the things that I kind of like about this is ostensibly this was Kubrick trying to, like, get at his desire to do something, period. He tried to do Vanity Fair. He tried to do Napoleon. He said Vanity Fair was too hard to compress. Napoleon, everybody balked at the budget, but there are, like, wonderfully expensive books about the pre-production on that. So Barry Lyndon is ultimately where he landed on the Thackeray adaptation. And I, like... The I don't know if the input was as explicit as we kind of see it as like kind of a big goof on this jackass being a social climber and like a muck about. But um, like it's funny him sitting for a period of I don't know how many minutes the shot are the shot goes teasing another member of his army just to kind of like it's like going to prison and you pick a fight with the biggest person. He's like. I heard that you weren't very manly as everybody in the field eggs a fight on because he's trying to do like a very calculated show of strength. But that's that calculation component right there to this movie. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's and that's the whole conundrum of Redmond Barry. Yeah, he is. He's intelligent enough to climb, but he's not intelligent enough to keep himself out of trouble. Oh, at he's every a pool step, boy through and through, finding every, an older lady to take care of him. Absolutely. <laughs> and you get a lot of really, again, droll, wonderful notes out of that. Yeah. Specifically, Mike, you and I were talking about this before the episode, his relationship with Lord Bullingdon, his <laughs> oh, adoptive yeah. son, and eventually mortal enemy. I kind of wish we had more scenes with young Bullingdon. Because that kid is so great at just that sort of deadpan hatred, that stoicism that like is such a good reactionary to um, uh, Ryan O'Neill. And just he just he's such a little brat. Like he's almost like Damien from The Omen if Damien was even at least a little self-aware at the, well, in the very a, beginning. Like, a, a he's a almost a contemporary eye. He's like, can't you see it? He's a piece of shit, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Like that's kind of what's so funny about him. A 10-year-old... Telling his essentially his stepdad that you are a common opportunist is hysterical. And a lot of this movie, again, is hysterical, but I don't want to downplay some of the genuine dramatic weight that Kubrick manages either. Because for all the, the humor, which doesn't let up to the bleak, bitter end of the film, there is also this sense of this person who crawls through life for no real better reason than again, going back to that theme of manifest destiny with 2001, this entitled notion that he should have more because why shouldn't he? Because there's nothing that really drives Redmond Barry throughout the film, aside from his genuine love for his one child who he ultimately loses. There's nothing that really drives him through except for this coyote esque notion that he he should have more because why shouldn't he? Which is really, if we're talking about the concept of privilege in its most mm-hmm. literal definition, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. And it's funny. He takes all the status. He, he achieves the status and he does literally nothing with it. Yeah. Just sits around drunk, passed out in front of the window in what looks like the best like Victorian painting recreations I've ever seen in a movie. Like him sitting like, eh, just I have my money everybody. now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he's I poison. Mean, he's absolutely poison. I mean, he's like basically the antithesis of Forrest Gump. <laughs> like you know if Forrest Gump oh. just keeps running through time just kind of running through life you know yeah, that's runs through really life, funny comparison he basically yeah. you know like Forrest Gump influences and promotes this guy just fucking drains and poisons which is such a Kubrick design you know like this well and it's the idea <laughs> of somebody who can wander through life haplessly 
and just have it go along with them until it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Because as yeah. always, Kubrick's protagonists are punished for their attempts to find ease in life, for oh, their totally. for their attempts to find resolution, for their attempts to conquer the chaos of the world in so many words. Because whether it's the men in Doctor Strange Love, whether it's the scientists in 2001, there are people, these are people who are trying to overcome the known world. I mean, hell, this is bleak, but even Spartacus wants to overcome slavery and is crucified for yeah. his efforts. Well, to, to be fair, the protagonists in each of the films that we're going to be discussing today do kind of win a little bit in the end. You know? Like, I mean, not without spoiling the next movie, but like, Jack gets to stay in the hotel forever that he falls in love with. You know, he gets checked. Barry gets checks for the rest of his life. Like, well, and I do think there is a rueful irony to that final scene. Barry is exiled from the entire existence he built, but he's still sitting there collecting a check at the end of the film. And meanwhile, you know, Dave gets to be star child, which is pretty cool. So, um, you know, Barry Lyndon is ostensibly that Instagram meme. I saw a couple weeks ago of like an angry child sitting on a chair, trying to think of how to make a million dollars before I have to go to work tomorrow or something like that. <laughs> yeah. like, and it, the Barry Lyndon actually found out how to do it. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. bastard. Yeah. And he basically destroys Lady Lyndon's life, which is not a point we should sleep on in this film, because if we're going to if we're going to talk about Stanley Kubrick using women as symbols, Lady Lyndon is the ultimate symbol of like what a man like Redmond Barry does in barreling through life. There is always a Lady Lyndon somewhere functioning as the collateral damage. And I think there's not much of a character there necessarily, but I do think there's a lot of empathy there from the film. It's, it's actually interesting, like, on a thing about the, the relationship to women in these movies, 2001, with the exception of the, the hostess on the flight, the, his daughter, that's, that's it. And I think there was maybe one doctor on the ship that's yes. asleep that's, but that's, we're, that's we're, a woman. But and we're all talking the first 20 minutes of the movie here in any case. Mm-hmm. But there's no, I mean, the, 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 it's interesting that, like, they're all... I mean, all the women in the in these movies, even The Shining included, they're all very subservient. Like they're all like they all like support the protagonists in ways that like. But they're also about the ways in which that support is turned violent, yes, and the way yeah. in which it becomes an active drain on them. It becomes it becomes assaultive in its mm-hmm. way. I mean, he's actively Redmond Barry is actively abusive to the young Lord Bullingdon throughout yeah. the film. And Haywood Floyd doesn't give that woman the, the answer that she wants on the the space station. No, I mean, I guess it's that 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 is a kind of a stretch for two thousand and one. I would mm-hmm. say just because it just seems. As if Kubrick and Clark were almost just wanting to take the thematic element of man itself and just have just maybe male protagonists. Or maybe it was around the time it just was taboo to talk about having women as astronauts or something. But it just seems... I just think it's very interesting that 2001, the the very the, the role of women in that movie is very nominal. Like, I mean, th- In most of his movies. And it makes me kind of wonder, like... The only I think the best he got towards like giving a, a female character like an actual arc and like agency was Eyes Wide Shut yeah, and the was level the, of like power Nicole Kidman's way is over and yeah. it, call it incidental historical maybe it was mindful he's yeah no set dressing support the women of his films kind of almost get in the way of man's greatness in some mm-hmm. of these movies she is in the way or um uh, Barry Lyndon's lady is in the way of his greatness because she asks questions and asks responsibilities of him. 
Uh, we'll, we'll talk about The Shining at some point. Yeah. Uh, Shelley Duvall is in the way of Jack's greatness because can't you see, hon, I'm trying to write. Um, and well, and like, I think yeah. that's an interesting point of comparison because throughout Barry Lyndon, I mean, again, not to belabor this point, yeah. but ba- Barry is treated as such a useless prick throughout the film. There's that yeah. one especially indulgent shot of him in the brothel <laughs> where he's just surrounded by this tableau of beautiful half to fully nude women just never looking more bored or more despondent it's the very vision of man achieving everything that man is supposed to in this life and finding if if 2001 is about the pursuit of meaning then barry linden is about what happens when you think you've achieved meaning and then realize it has yielded none yeah. which random thought and i've never looked into this do you think kubrick deliberately cast ryan o'neill on the status of him being a pretty boy 1970s hollywood actor like he is a curly locked blonde coming off of love story and it's like i know what i'll do with it it would, it would be like casting brad pitt 1995 if we were to cast in 1995 or who, who are the pretty boys now i don't even know anymore unless like peter bogdanovich was like giving him a cause it's like hey uh stanley i got this great guy in paper moon <laughs> Take him. <laughs> have you seen my What's Up Doc? Babs is great, but O'Neill, let me tell you. No, it, but it, I, it, he totally plays into this whole mantra, too, of like, it, it's amazing what you can kind of get away with in life if you have like certain standing, certain looks, yeah. certain connectivity, whatever you want to call it. Well, that's, it, yeah, Ryan O'Neill is such a weird casting. I mean, it makes sense in the time, but at the same time, we were discussing this before recording also, is that. It had to be intentional because well, he's, there's no depth to this to him whatsoever. I mean, he just is there. Like, and there's, yeah. and yeah. taking it on an extra textual level, which at this point, it's borderline impossible to not read Kubrick on that. I mean, he was trying to destroy Tom Cruise and Nicole Kimmons marriage on the set of Eyes Wide Shut. So you have to read a little bit of the production context into it. Filmography. We psychoanalyze Kubrick. So I think it's very interesting that you have this actor who's famous for stuff like Love Story. Yeah. Casting him in this story of a man drifting through life undeserving of the acclaim that befalls him, which is really mean for Kubrick to do to this man in one sense, yeah. but also kind of works on that level as well. No, it's genius. It is it's arguably genius level casting. Let's just throw it into the praise pile. <laughs> well, and the other thing I really wanted to draw out a little bit with Lyndon was just the way in which it plays with a specific kind of entitlement. Like yes. it's entitlement as a purpose in life, because going back to a point we made a few minutes ago, there's nothing that really drives Barry beyond trying to have more. And in a, in the way that a lot of Kubrick's films are prescient because of what they say about science fiction or what they've done for genre in one form or another, or what they've done for studio filmmaking. I think Barry Lyndon is really interesting in the way it's a direct comment on the dialogues we're having today about privilege and about even just when people joke about fail sons on Twitter and people being able to fuck up their way upwards. Barry Lyndon is a really sharp commentary on that, on the idea of just a handsome young white man who drops out of the war and never really commits to anything feeling like he deserves the moon. Doesn't that sound familiar? Like someone we know. Wow. (laughs) I don't appreciate you implying that I failed upwards. (laughs) But no, there is something totally universal about these themes, right? Like the person who fails upward, the person who gets into a relationship for means, not 
uh, feelings, the kind of people who are able to use jobs as stepping stones, the people who kind of like manage to maneuver and manipulate themselves into positions of power. Yes, we are kind of dabbling in that field right now. But you, yeah, the movie, watching it as we kind of say it in our 30s, like it's not just a period piece. It is a universal tome of like, it, it's a song of those assholes, those people who kind of just manage to fail their way upwards. Sean Levy, who's directed three Night at the Museum movies and made like $5 billion off of those, has no directorial acumen as far as I can see. But he's managed to position himself from Nickelodeon like TV shows up into like, uh, you know, du jour director of spectacle for some reason. It's applicable. Yeah. It's so applicable, this movie. I mean, I, w- I just hope that at the end of the day, um, you know, our president gets hobbled and... Uh... <laughs> Do, only doesn't get checks at the he'll, you know, he'll every just month. he'll just sit there signing his check yeah forlorn yeah. until the end of time yeah. i at the risk of sounding shallow though barry linden is not as ugly as uh, the mm-hmm. president i mean that ryan o'neill oh that hair he still has the hair <laughs> if you watch him in yeah. film worker yeah. he just still you know he still got it um yeah, I am. I, I love this movie. I think it's a. I think it's a blast. And and I, and I and I and I don't mean that sarcastically. I actually was <laughs> genuinely shocked watching this recently at just how entertaining it was. I think it's absolutely important and imperative to take the intermission and to enjoy yeah. yourself for a little bit and then come back to it because I think you need that sort of vessel of time. I think there's absolutely something like I. I, I have. I still. This is still the one Kubrick film I have not seen in theaters. Uh, and I really wish I would have seen it when they played it here recently at the Music Box. But at the same time, I do like the idea of going back to it like maybe an hour or two later or something. Mm-hmm. Because I think even, I even watched the first half uh, one night and then the next half like the next morning or something like that. And I, mm-hmm. I just that vessel that that passage of time was very crucial to me at least in terms of like feeling the narrative a little bit more. Uh, so I don't I, I don't know I, I think it's I think it gets a bad rap. Uh, this very London. If well, I'm being real, I think people just don't want to watch a three-hour film. I'm, I'm not. I'm. That's a cynical, easy read, but I do genuinely think that is a problem with it because that was the outlier for me for a long time. Mm-hmm. Like, when am I going to commit to this? And oh god, I feel so stupid well, that I wasted. A, but do you remember that, not watching it? That Stanley Kubrick collection, the box set. That was always that was always the one that was like left behind, at, like in the door in the <laughs> dorm room. Like everyone would borrow like Full Metal Jacket or Clockwork Orange, yeah, but yeah. nobody would ever take Barry Lyndon because it would always be the one that people would be like, ah, uh, you don't really want to watch this. Don't don't. Worry about it you don't you don't need to watch this and quietly it's probably one of his most interesting pieces of work yeah. i would strongly argue and i think people in terms of the work if you find a person you will get uh, someone who will claim that it is the like penultimate kubrick film you can argue that for every one of his but in a lot of ways it has that formal rigidity it has the thematic extremes yeah. in grasp exceeding reach slash reach kind of not accomplishing anything that you're grasping uh, and it also just, yeah, it, it really kind of fits into the, like the Kubrick film, if you want to make that argument. Well, and as far as reach, not accomplishing anything, that's a yeah. good segue out into <laughs> the shining in 1980, which is Kubrick controversially taking on Stephen King. You slip me a bottle of bourbon, a little glass and some ice. You can do that. Can't you Lloyd? You're not too busy. Are you? <laughs> no, sir. Now, I won't jump into this all day, but suffice it to say, King to this day is not a huge fan of Kubrick's adaptation because he takes a story about King reckoning with his own demons and turns Jack Torrance into a cipher and an absolute monster for his own dramatic purposes. And it was also canonized recently in uh, Ready Player One, which made that official and part of history now that King hates this book. Uh, or this this adaptation, which is, 
I thought that was actually kind of funny because he kind of waffle he kind of like waffles back and forth on whether or not he loves this or he hates this. Uh, recently, he kind of snubbed the movie. Uh, Wait, he snubbed Ready Player One. No, well, no, Shining, no, no Shining. The, the, the Shining. Okay. Like, uh, but my, my thing with my yeah, thing with Jack this Nicholson's no Steven Weber. That's for sure. Yeah, Jesus exactly. Christ. Uh, uh, God, go back and watch that 1997 <laughs> adaptation, and you'll you'll actually want to get a drink and start <laughs> murdering anyone who's next to you. Also, but. My, we don't condone murder here. We do not condone uh, murder. But uh, <laughs> but if you use uh, you know um, one of those uh, croquet mallets instead, uh, you know you can get the job done. No, um, my my thing with Kubrick's adaptation of this is that I actually think this is one of the best Stephen King adaptations because he takes the source material, all its themes mm-hmm. and the horrors that are inside, and brings them to another level. He basically he he does. I mean, it's actually a pretty great adaptation of the themes that are inside the book. It's just not narratively the same and it doesn't you know i mean i guess king's big argument is that the minute you see nicholson's jack torrance he's insane but at the same time that's also in the book you know he's he has these demons in him when you first meet jack torrance in the book people just don't like to people don't like to contextualize their personal struggles Mm -hmm. as this universally monstrous thing well so as a generation of harry potter fans being mad at the movies for not being direct representations of the novel it's like different strokes for different folks different mediums and i i the shining is a masterful accomplishment in many respects which is a shame that king like i i get it you see what people do with your work you get bummed out about it but it's also like but there's a lot of good in there, Stephen. Can yeah. we really get you to rethink this? Well, I think it's because it's such a personal story to him. Yeah, because yeah. It's, it, he, you know, he has a, he had struggles with uh, addiction, alcohol, and and to a bunch of other different drugs and stuff. But I think the problem is, is that it, it's, <laughs> I mean, it, there's also like, you know, Kubrick takes some great liberties in creating his own horrors with this. You know, like the twins, the 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 Grady twins aren't even really in the book. I mean, they're mentioned, but they're not. You don't. Danny doesn't see them. Well, so, and that seems to be like the most iconic sequence of this entire fucking story. Now that people associate with the book, which I'm sure gets under King's skin, also. Well, but. now for one, it's interesting that you mention that because mm-hmm. one, I directly believe that part of the iconic status of that is attributed to its cameo in the 1997 classic Twister. Uh, but that's yeah. neither here I, nor there. No, I agree with that though. No. Come, come back in September for um, filmography Yonder Bond. <laughs> but I, guys, I got dibs on Cradle of Life, Tomb Raider. Oh, uh, nice. Yes, yes. If I can deep cut this. Well, rolling rolling back <laughs> to the Shining, King's famous story of the overlook hotel and the time jumping horrors therein and the literal and figurative ghosts of the overlook and you turn it into what is in reality a two and a half hour three hand chamber drama the film very rarely leaves the overlook once they settle in for winter Mm -hmm. it only looks outside to check in on scatman crothers as halloran who is violently killed in the film which is another substantial departure from the source material i gotta tell you the clint eastwood quote about that he called that scene quote dead as a dick but we'll talk more about that soon yeah well he's got such nuggets you know if you're no if you're bringing that up i want to stay on this so uh no long story short uh one of the better books i've read in the last six months conversations with clint (laughs) it's yeah i'm a clint eastwood apologist uh but one of the cool things it's like it's him being interviewed in the late 70s to uh, mid 80s about his works and kind of stuff that he was doing at the time past works at one point in the middle of the book he just kind of starts rambling about the shining and like it's really fascinating to like hear one directorial name talking about another directorial name 
uh, completely different ideology styles, what have you. Clint would be done with a movie in like two takes, whereas you guys, we all know about like the Kubrickian overtakes. And when The Shining comes up, he has like all this inside baseball information because he kept hearing about like how The Shining was screened to the executives and they had no idea what the fuck they were looking at. He's like, $40 million for a bunch of hotel hallways, huh? Well, I guess he was reaching for something he didn't understand. And the best is like he totally shits on what is the the tagline on the poster? A masterpiece of modern horror. And he's like, why don't you wait for a critic to just say that before he actually put on the poster, guys? Jesus. Oh this is coming from a guy who was promoting his sequel to the Monkey movie in that time. But like <laughs> he made Unforgiven, which is great. He's made a lot of shit too. But like some of these quotes are amazing because it's like, right, you kind of forget that like ostensibly if you strip this movie, it is like a very long, lugubrious hotel story, a chamber drama, as you kind of just mm-hmm. suggested. It really right? is because yeah. in its own way you know the shining is one of the movies that gets pointed to when we talk about kubrick as a cerebral filmmaker yeah and if we've been challenging that notion throughout the past few weeks of that show i want to bring us back to that here yeah because i think that there is an emotional center to kubrick's adaptation it's just the shift is in it being about Jack in the novel to it being about Wendy and Danny in the film. Mm-hmm. Because you come to feel for them, even though there's not much to either of them as characters, no. just because of the primal gut level terror that this film achieves. I will argue that one my favorite image in the film, and I will argue one of the scariest things I've ever seen in a movie, is the sequence at the very end when it's sort of this this nightmare ballet through the overlook when all the ghosts are making themselves more fully manifest. Yeah. You have her looking down into the room where the man is being filleted by a furry, which now you hear furry and you start laughing because we're all children in the internet. But in 1980, this was a transgressive image, but more than that, it hits you on this primal Mm -hmm. spinal level of this is wrong. What I am seeing is Mm -hmm. wrong and horrid and surreal and genuinely frightening. Is eye contact painful, though? Not to be all introvert, but like that is kind of the the gift of that moment right there. Being forced to curtain front, face to face, eye to eye. Yeah. And some of the more simple, amazing move. Sorry. Some of the more frightening moments of Eyes Wide Shut speak to that as well, where it's it's that terror of being looked upon, which a lot of the biggest scares in this movie do, whether it's things looking at you or whether it's the terror he minds from Shelley Duvall's expressive mm-hmm. performance and just her looking with horror at things. Yeah. I've been thinking about it a lot because I've seen Hereditary twice while I've been preparing for this episode of the show, and Ari Aster in that film also makes really interesting use of the act of people looking at something terrifying and using their expressions as its own act of filmic terror. Oh, absolutely. I mean, her reaction to that shot, and it looks as if she just walked out of the freezer. I mean, it's terrifying. I mean, in her eyes, just like solid pitch black. I think there's a European mm-hmm. poster of the movie that has that shot of her. And she's just, it's just terrifying. It's just, I mean, it just, it adds to so much of the tension of the movie. Um, although I would credit the majority of the horror of this film is actually the sound design, but, uh, just because I think that the, I think the soundtrack to this film is just legitimately frightening in the way that it's just one of, definitely it's one of his best scrapbook scores. Like, I mean, all of them are scrapbook scores, but this is just like really just great, uh, scrapbooking here. And especially with like Bartok and, um, with like some of the Getty pieces as well. But that sequence is just, is just, I feel like Kubrick just like literally like 
freewheeling with like all his <laughs> techniques because you know he's already he'd already mastered the long shot like in previous films and so many of them uh but that that one just that zoom is just so fucking like like it, it really does feel like when you walk into something and there's just something in the room that you're not expecting and you get that jolt of the heart or like when you're yeah. driving and you see a highway patrolman you're like uh oh, like it just it gets you and it, i've seen the movie a dozen times and it still always gets me um having said that i do think <laughs> the the bar the ballroom sequence with all the skeletons around there is a little lame like that's the only thing i would take from the from this that i just think it's a little too like ah eh, it's scary when you see people like i don't i don't i think the skeletons like in a dusty room felt a little too like i thought that was the only lazy it, part it, in the movie for me. i wouldn't go as far as calling it lazy it's definitely making the figurative literal i will agree yeah. there and it's one note in a series of escalations it, it's awkward but it recovers i always oh feel it does like. Cause, it absolutely because eventually they get out to the the maze which is like a wonderful closer yeah so yeah. if we're going to talk about these performances sorry we i have just to... called shining wonderful anyway uh <laughs> we have to talk about a wonderful time <laughs> we have to talk about process a little bit because it's of all of Kubrick's movies, The Shining may be the most difficult to divorce from the circumstances of its creation. Yeah. This was an arduous shoot. This was Kubrick being especially difficult on his actors, even by his standards, particularly with Shelley Duvall, who yeah, yeah. yielded one of the more harrowing stories of like general onset abuse in modern Hollywood history, where Kubrick would do things like pound on her door at five in the morning to keep her sleep deprived so that she'd look appropriately exhausted the next day on set. This was this was Kubrick at the height or around the height of his powers also around the height of his power in a very different sense in terms of what he could get away with on a movie set. This is Kubrick making interns type out every page and every line of Jack Torrance's climactic all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy screenplay because he didn't like the look of Xerox. This is Hollywood filmmaker hubris at its zenith, and it's worth acknowledging because it's also a film that is meditating on a lot of those same themes about suffering for the sake of making art. Which is funny to the theme of Human Extreme. Like, this is a movie that came out, what, a year after Apocalypse Now, perhaps the most famously arduous production shoot of all time. And The Shining kind of gets lost in the shuffle of that because it's like, it is, it, it, no, it's straight up abuse. It's all abuse. Do you ever see the the film featurette from Kubrick's wife on the DVD where they show actual footage on set. Mm -hmm. Shelley yeah. looks super uncomfortable, kind of smoking a cigarette. Scott like, Crothers just yeah. breaks down. Oh, like, yeah. And then Jack Nicholson, like, all right, your take is ready as he starts to, like, growl and, like, get crazy for it. And, like, even that makes you uncomfortable. And I, yeah. Uh, but what are the takes we were working on with this movie for him? Like, they, Oh, there were, like, I think with Scott Crothers, they did it, like, a hundred-something times. A oh, hundred-plus times. At one point in that in that documentary, he just breaks in. He's like, "I don't know what you want from me, Mr. Kubrick." Like, I, you know. I, but the thing is, here's the thing. Yeah, <laughs> it translates to screen. Yes, that's yes, the problem. Yes. It's, it's it's like when you look at it and you go, "God, what was this all this for?" And then you're like, "Well, <laughs> watch this movie. Look at Shelley Duvall's reactions half of the time. You know, she looks like she's in." A torturous relationship which is amazing i mean like even when you don't even see her together with jack yet when she's just yeah. at home back in i think uh, back at their their apartment building um she's got such a, a fragility to her that speaks to this history uh that 
I mean, obviously, we know it because we're looking at it behind the scenes. Isn't mm-hmm. because she's married to Jack Nicholson because she's not. This is fiction. It's her relationship to Stanley Kubrick. Like it is. Kubrick yeah. had to become the overlook in a way that that. And look, I'm not condoning what he did, but I'm just saying, I get I get the the conceit of these things that he was doing because when you look at this film, every shot, it's almost like, especially coming off of Barry Lyndon, it makes even more sense. Is that every one of these shots is is he's just trying to suck the energy out of everyone and and like even like the Scatman Crother sequences where you know he's just when he does that stare I think that was one of the the ones that they mm-hmm. reshot again and again and again and it's just but he gets it I mean you watch that sequence and it literally looks like all the stuff is viscerally happening I mean it's I, I don't and know. look in terms of Kubrick's process on this movie we're talking about the stuff that become has become fetishistic lore for so many film school students until you learn that being an abusive prick on set is not a way to get anything yeah. done but one could argue he's breaking new ground trying new techniques is a product of the period we're not like it's it, what he did was ostensibly wrong and abusive and terrible yeah. but like to the point of proof in the pudding the film presents you such stunning and like and i would say yeah it's just two truths existing aside one another yeah he did do some egregiously terrible things on this set and he did make a great movie out of it and how we reconcile that will ultimately come down to the individual arguably exactly when he also shot it in in order which is oh i didn't know that yeah so they did shoot this in 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 succession so that's why i think that also plays into why (laughs) that he maybe have done this because you know slowly it got you know when you look back at some of the shots that they usually reference and Mm -hmm. especially when those those the documentary that's on the the dvd a lot of those are when they're already at the hotel they're already going through like the endings and stuff like that so i I do think that there was some (laughs) there's some meticulous planning on his part to how he was going to I, i wouldn't be surprised he spent the majority of pre-production going through like how am i going to amp up my you know actors yeah. and well uh, and that's the funny thing too this movie cost 40 million by 1979 1980 standards for frame of reference for blockbusters ghostbusters five years later cost like 30 million to produce and that's a special effects heavy film this one i think ran the overages from the long shoot from doing weird hours to doing all this stuff so when clint's like I don't understand what he's looking for. It's like clearly he was wasting a lot of time looking. Well, not wasting, but using a lot of time looking for the material at the expense of Warner Brothers saying, okay. Well, and in general, The Shining is existent proof more than anything of a theory that tends to pop up in a lot in film criticism where people are always lusting after A-tier directors, which Kubrick indisputably was by this point in history, to do genre movies. Because we're still having that debate to this day of whether a director doing a horror movie or a thriller or a sci-fi flick is like them slumming. We still have those conversations, which is ridiculous. I think but we in were 19- like this close to getting Alfonso Horan to do the Overlook Hotel as like a spinoff mm-hmm. sequel or something like that. And I was genuinely curious on the grounds of Horan doing it. Well, apparently that script is actually really good. Who, uh, who wrote it? The, I, I don't know who wrote it. My, okay. Maybe it was James Vanderbilt or something. He seems like he always the name that gets thrown around there. But yeah. uh, one of our uh, colleagues over at Birth movie's desk scott wampler he's read it and he said it's just he said it was actually a really interesting screenplay that plays like a nice companion piece but also a separate film uh itself but okay but hey it's okay we're going to be going back uh in two two years with uh mike flanagan's dr sleep we're going back to the overlook did they get a the the the, did they just cast the danny or did i see yeah ewan mcgregor is gonna play so i'm actually i mean with mcgregor involved i'm i'm interested even though the book is just uh, supposed to be garbage but oh really oh yeah it's about like a bunch of like soul-sunking vampires that like 
um, live in caravans and they're like all like a bunch of deadbeats and it's just like wait what like oh funny. anyway okay you know? but if we're talking about The Shining as this meticulous piece of craft that sort of ties back to the other films we've touched upon then where these are very much like in the traditional sense auteur visions these are Kubrick working with nearly unlimited boundary and power in terms of what he's allowed to do in filmmaking terms and up through what he's allowed to get away with on set And before we jump into the intermission, I do just want to take a couple minutes, as long as we're doing filmography Stanley Kubrick, to at least touch upon AI artificial intelligence. So for those of you who may not know, Kubrick was in production on AI as his next feature following Eyes Wide Shut, and then he died in 1999 immediately after finishing that film. So Steven Spielberg eventually took over where Kubrick had began and ended up bringing the film to theaters in 2001. And it's an interesting example because if I won't quite go as far as declaring it a Kubrick feature, because God knows there is a lot of Steven Spielberg all over the finished version of AI, you can still very much see the skeleton of what could have been a distinctly Kubrick sci-fi movie which also it's worth noting would have been his first since 2001 had he completed it which was kind of entertaining i remember the like one of the general criticisms and i saw this everybody said like one half of the movie is distinctly kubrickian the other half of the movie is distinctly spielbergian the pleasure city paradise city whatever it was called i'll we'll get the notes right uh was like the kubrickian chapter because it's like human impulse and creepy nature whereas like the pinocchio stuff and like the journey beyond was a little more Spielbergian. Although, yeah, I, I, but I always thought it was funny that people could see it in distinct modes. I'm like, I see a little bit of each of them in every scene in that movie. Um, you kind of have the bittersweet with like the extreme experience and push towards the beyond, to, towards things that we don't quite understand yet. And it was cool to see him try to dabble in 2001-like themes, but and just, it's, ugh, I know there's this revisionist love for this movie and I still think it's messy, but we can dig into that. Uh, well, I think it's an interesting case study in just how ill-fitting Kubrick's aesthetic is to the modern era of filmmaking as much as anything. Because there are sequences, and I think very specifically of the flesh farm sequence early in AI, which is one of the more disturbing set pieces of Spielberg's career now, as it were, and is distinctly Kubrick in its vision of, well, if we had Blade Runner robots, yeah, we'd do nothing (laughs) but torture them for our own entertainment. And there's something very Kubrickian about that and also about where a lot of AI eventually ends going up with, once again, this pursuit of truth Mm -hmm. beyond the extreme of what this humanoid boy is able to understand. Truth, humanity, understanding, whatever you want to call it. But it is a journey all the same. It is an Odyssean child. It's, It's Pinocchio. Well, and I also want to toss out, I'm very much of the persuasion There is a Kubrick ending to the film, and then there's the one Spielberg affixes to it. Kubrick's movie ends with Haley Joel Osment trapped underneath the Wonder Wheel for all eternity, right? But it's not true, though. He actually um, came out, or Spielberg, I believe, came out recently and said that the original ending was the the Pinocchio ending, Um, or like getting to be the you know the real boy for the oh wow yeah. So that's I always thought that too, and but I I, I still go back and then again, there's a lot of back and forth and waffling there with Spielberg, especially when you even talk about like little things like the fridge sequence and crystal skull. Like it's always, it's either Lucas or it's Spielberg. And then one of the other always takes it. So, 
But even yeah, if you look at it narratively, it makes much more sense to end with him in front of the blue fairy forever under under in you know in and water, like, but... we don't fully know maybe kubrick was trying to do something sickly sweet and spielberg was like no i need to be a little more brooding in the vein of kubrick and we yeah. could be missing the whole like thing but it is kind of like it, it's just so innate how felt their presences are in that film yeah but it's kind of weird like picking a stamp on it like like a crazy person wall well and facts. it is an interesting comment in its own way because if we're talking about the 70s renegade the film school brats mm-hmm. the auteur directors at the time Kubrick always existed a little bit separately from the rest of the crop. And some of that was probably his lifelong exile into the UK starting in the early 60s. But all the same, Kubrick always existed in his own class. And if we're talking about this push for human extremity, then I think a good way to wrap up here is by acknowledging that was Kubrick. Kubrick was always pushing his own craft for better and worse and it's I'm also going to declare it pretty imperative that we not sleep on the worst because part of how film progresses as a medium is starting to acknowledge and reckon with that history mm-hmm. of some of our most beloved works coming from places like that. Like the birds is amazing and Hitchcock locked Tippy Hedren in a room with birds she was terrified of. But by that same token, when you look at Kubrick, these movies about men trying to exceed their means and never fully reaching the thing that they're actually grasping for, that was Kubrick up until the end. I mentioned on the last episode that Eyes Wide Shut was delivered the day before he died. Yeah. He was pushing mm-hmm. and pushing and pushing until he had nothing left to give. But we can also debate that in a sense because whatever the circumstances of art, he made a bunch of films that are going to be taught until time immemorial. God, I feel like we should try and dabble in that list too. And a little bit of like the failed projects of his as well, just to kind of like note the extremes because he also was kind of like a deliberate workhorse and that he was attached to projects, mm-hmm. projects that never came to fruition. And then mm-hmm. he took things he wanted, like the period stuff and transplanted ideas into the final of Barry Lyndon yeah. sci-fi ideas that couldn't work with 2001 came into AI ostensibly and other such things. Yeah. Cause I believe the ending of AI with the aliens mm-hmm. finding David mm-hmm. is the Kubrickian thing that he might've actually had from 2001 uh, or around that area also because that's the thing it's like you know the aliens coming in i actually like that sequence a lot at the Mm -hmm. end of ai it's just what they do (laughs) it kind of reminds me of like the movie the explorers where you spend this entire time with these kids making this rinky dink spaceship and you're like oh man this is gonna be awesome they're gonna finally go to space and then they get there and you're like oh it's these lame fucking aliens that would be at like a disney theme park this sucks but but that's what but but the ending of ai felt like that to me it's like you finally see these really cool weird digital aliens and then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's just so sappy and one of the things i can appreciate with kubrick like it's we're all writers there are things that we want to write about and reviews articles that we don't have space time can't quite make work and have to save for later Mm -hmm. nolan said he had all these wonderful ideas about Howard Hughes for a biopic. It got scrapped because the Scorsese one comes. So he just recycled ideas from that in the later projects. Like, yeah. it, it, it totally makes sense. Yeah. Like, you just you become micro-obsessed with things and you want to hold them. You want to find a place for them. And maybe, yeah, maybe Dom, he was running out of space. I mean, Spielberg and Kasdan and, and Lucas, they're notorious for doing this, especially Lucas. Oh, my God. Like, mm-hmm. literally, nothing goes untouched in the Lucasfilm archives. I mean, there's stuff in even just in solo recently that were taken back from 30, 40 years ago. So yeah, I mean, I kind of like that, that, that dusting them off approach with when it comes to like projects, especially with Mm -hmm. Kubrick where he spent more time on 
you know, the, the planning than most people do with movies, <laughs> with their entire production. So, um, yeah, I mean, it would have been interesting to see him do AI, but at the same time, sure. I, I actually really love Eyes Wide Shut as being his last movie. Well, it has maybe the best final line of any tour director's body of work <laughs> ever. So yeah. right right there. I love you, baby. Let's get back together. That's how it ended. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah right. Let's have another child. You. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that, on that note of us outright telling you lies, we're going to take a very quick ad break. And then when we come back, we're going to jump into talking cinematography, editing, sound, and so much more through the back half of the final episode of Filmography, Stanley Kubrick. Welcome back to Filmography. If you're just joining us midway through, there's half of a podcast to listen to. Go back and do that. But we're talking the final chunk of Stanley Kubrick's body of work through the films 2001, Barry Lyndon, and The Shining. And as always, please, if you're enjoying filmography, just take a second before you finish off this show to leave us a rating on iTunes and or Podchaser if you haven't already. And... Otherwise, we're going to jump right into talking cinematography and editing. I have no real preamble for this because I could do an entire podcast series talking about these aspects of Kubrick's work specifically. And if I hadn't already jumped the shark with this one, I might have taken that idea and run with it. So I shouldn't have said it out loud. I'll never run away and start my own (laughs) filmography spinoff now. Be that as it may, we're going to kick right off with 2001, shot by Jeffrey Unsworth. And also, John Alcott is credited with additional photography on this feature, which is interesting because Alcott, as we're going to talk about shortly, would go on to shoot all of Kubrick's 70s work up through The Shining in 1980 as well. So... In context of 2001, where to start with the photography? This is, I think I actually want to go back to your point from the first half, Mike, to start off, because I think in a lot of ways, we informed the language of how we understand modern sci-fi and how we understand space down to the way that we design spacecraft as time went on, Mm -hmm. influenced by the way that we contextualize ships in space in this movie on screen. Well, it's interesting because, okay, so Arthur C. Clarke is basically a scientist. And you're bringing in a man of science. I mean, granted, he's a science fiction writer also. But for the most part, he's definitely like a pseudoscientist. And to have him coming in to make a Hollywood movie, that's already a great start. <laughs> like, especially if you're going into trying to talk about the, the realities of certain things, uh, you know, the larger realities of things. So I, I think that Kubrick, in terms of collaborations, I think that's a great uh, beginning. And I think it, that's part of and parcel why this film seems so legit then and it seems so legit now. And I, and, I, and I think that also informed literally every facet of the production for this movie, whether it was the photography or the, the, the design to, you know. So, no, I actually have a, an honest question about this. So I've never read the Clark books, alas, as we kind of acknowledged earlier, and I got to get on them. And I wanted to ask you, Mike, because it sounds like you've you've done the homework. How would you describe, like, you're telling me Clark is a scientist, which is kind of cool because he can inform composition details for cinematography. How would you describe his prose? Because I, like, is he kind of like, it was a spacey night. We traveled beyond <laughs> the infinite. No, I like, but no, I've, I've always wondered, yeah. No, 
no, it's 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 very uh, it's very patient. It's very um it's very Bradbury esque. I mean, not as really? not as uh, not as gorgeous as okay. Bradbury stuff. Like you know, you know, you're not going to get these gorgeous autumnal uh, skies and all. But he <laughs> he's he got he's got like a he's got a nice prose and nice voice, and okay. it's not it's not sterile. Like it doesn't okay. it doesn't uh, like I. I that's what I was curious about. Re- recall yeah. lots of like different sequences, especially the 2061 is when I feel like he starts getting back into just being a sci-fi writer and, and focusing less on trying to be, all right, I want to try to predict everything <laughs> at this point, which he still does in that book. Sure. But by then you can tell that he's really just kind of leaning in on more of his just fictional aspects and stuff. So he, and, he, it was, and it works. And I was curious because like Andy Weir, the Martian, everybody keeps telling me it's like instruction manuals for space from like an engineer who happened to chance upon a novel idea. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. And you know. honestly, the, the Martian reads much more like a, like a, a manual than sure. 2001 does for sure. Okay. Um, that's another sell to read 2001. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty, it, I mean, look, I haven't read it in God, 20 years now, but mm-hmm. I recall, you know, look, if it, if it hooked me when I was, God, what was that? I would have been 12, 13 years old at the time. So, yeah, if it hooked me then, like, that's it says something. I mean, cause, yeah. Well, and I think it's really interesting, too, because if you're talking about this predictive idea mm-hmm. as far as being a key part of 2001's aesthetic, there is something distinctly retrofuturist about its vision of... Mm-hmm. 2001 there i mean we joked about pan am and the howard johnson but there's also this idea of basic sterile modern conveniences being the future of man which is its own kind of arch commentary but also innovation to apathy like the just the natural dichotomy of that relationship like all these wonderful things so we can get an at&t telephone booth on the moon you know like okay Hey, the Hilton's there too. So (laughs) Howard Johnson isn't open yet, however. Yeah. But I think I do think it's really interesting because if you look at the way it's shot, it it if we're talking about 2001 as a film without a ton of traditional narrative beats onto which an Mm -hmm. audience member can kind of tether themselves, then a lot of the visual composition does the lifting there. Yes. Because the way that Unsworth and Alcott frame people just human beings in these spaces tells a lot of the dramatic story of the film the way in which they are isolated the way in which they are made small over and over that's one of my biggest takeaways is even in closed hallways people look so small Mm -hmm. they look dwarfed by their surroundings there's that famous shot of dave in his um outer exploration suit the famous red suit coming through the hallway he is at once filling the frame and looks completely reduced within it by the scope of everything around him and we'll talk about this a little bit more with the shining but in past weeks we've talked about how kubrick manages to make claustrophobic spaces feel infinite in size and that's no more true than here where down to that famous just deeply horrifying image of the second space traveler drifting out into the abyss, becoming yes. smaller and smaller and smaller against this panorama of vast space. These are genuinely frightening images that really do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of getting across these themes of these are places that man was arguably never meant to transgress. And it totally speaks to, and we talked about this in the past podcast, his beginnings in like Look Magazine as a traditional black and white photographer. So he's always had a keen eye for this sort of stuff. And one of the things I do want to point out, this movie is Stanley Kubrick's only Academy Award. And it was an Academy Award, a specialty one for best visual effects. He was nominated for like writing and directing. But I would argue since he was so kind of like managerial about the visual uh, conceits of this film and the direction of which this movie goes and presents itself, 
I consider that his cinematography award for this film if he won mm-hmm. for visual effects for this because this is like to that point of the photographer's eye he knows about the simple power of placement of a human being within a space as you were saying Dominic he knows how to kind of present a brightly colored spacesuit body in the vast emptiness of space like it's nothing and yet it's everything it's infinitely cosmic and yet it is chillingly small those hallway shots those handheld shots or even the beginnings of the movie, the presence of the monolith amidst the dawn of man apes, it is absolutely nothing, and yet it is so everything in its presentation and how he lets people in the environment interact with it. And I want to talk about the monolith and the apes for just a second, because mm-hmm. if we're talking about form in Kubrick, we have to talk about the early edit. Because yeah, yeah, we'd yeah. be remiss if we didn't acknowledge a moment as genuinely important as that. If, and if you're listening at home and you're unfamiliar, there is the edit at the very end of the Dawn of Man sequence, the prologue of 2001 involving humanity during its ape, its more primal phase, um, hurling a bone into the air after discovering the bone's capacity for violence, and then the bone, which I believe is just slightly askew of horizontal when the edit takes place, immediately jumping to a space station. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about film editing as a function of condensing and expanding time, and we're talking about that specifically in the context of these movies... A millennia on a flash of the eye. It's amazing. It is. And it's one of the most parodied images in film history for a reason. Which, quick note, did you know that you can actually recreate 2001 with Simpsons clips? The producers attest to this. They also say you can recreate Citizen Kane with all Simpsons parodies. So 2001 and... uh, and uh, Citizen Kane can be done with this. And they, I actually just watched the episode recently where they parodied The Dawn of Man, where it's Homer falling as, as an ape falling asleep on the monolith because <laughs> he's a lazy monkey, <laughs> a lazy chimp. Yeah, uh, but no, it is parodied because it's still it, it's kind of perfectly striking mm-hmm. to go from a bone. Whoever the uh, the editor is, Ray Lovejoy, right, Dom? Yes. Thank you. Um, like I I've watched that cut over and over, and it's not even perfectly synchronized. But it's so effectively fluid in how it actually kind of transitions. Well, and it's the ultimate statement of theme that mm-hmm. once once we learn savagery, Only all of it of was just really building to this point. Yeah, yeah. It is editing as dramatic storytelling in one of its most explicit senses possible. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I think that scope carries over to the climactic sequence, the beyond as well, because in trying to visualize a world beyond comprehension, Kubrick does something really fascinating that really popped out to me watching it in theaters most recently, which is this is a film drained almost entirely of anything but explicit, har- deliberately harsh primary colors. Mm-hmm. And then segues into a sequence of blinding, unimaginable flashes of the entire spectrum of light. Which one of the things I love about this, and I've uh, and you know kind of hinted at this, I've tried to look into the process, the technical photo process of how they created this, and I've seen hints, yeah. and I don't want to to kind of like uh, break the magic because it's like there are shots within this voyage of. A floating helicopter camera. This is the practical mm-hmm. definition to me. Floating helicopter camera over water, mountains, with just simple two-tone color overlays yeah. on it. And I'm like, there was a point in my teens where I'm like, well, that's just crap. You know, it's obviously a color plate or something put on, like, exposing the negative to these colors so it looks a weird way. But the older I get, the more I'm like, 
Well, I don't know that. If I'm in a place beyond definition and comprehension, who knows what kind of tricks could be played on the eyes? Who knows how we understand color, articulated mountains, texture, things like that? I I totally buy into the imagination and sci-fi logic of this, of like, this is probably just what these things look like, and I still don't get it. You're beyond space. Exactly. You're you're beyond tactility. You're beyond arguably what the human eye and mind even is capable of processing. And you're zooming through time in yes. in such a fast way then you're going to be compacted. I mean technically the jo- we were joking after watching 2001 recently that if you get to 2010 the sequel which Dave Peter Bowen- Himes former Chicago weatherman following up Stanley Kubrick by the way which is hysterical. Yeah, this is insane. Um yeah. but if you watch that or even read it the idea that Dave appears as a spirit or as mm-hmm. the star child is kind of funny and in ironic in a way because He's technically still going through the you know the time loop in that in that narrative you know linear narrative, but uh, so I, I do love this vessel of you know him just being drawn away from the universe and that, and Blake mm-hmm. it's the same thing with me. Every time I watched, I do wonder like how the hell did they recreate these sequences? Yeah, in or how do they create these sequences at the time? That this was I mean 1968. There's some stuff in there that is like so out of this world that. I can understand how they would do it now with computers and everything. But back then it's just like, you know, I guess they, I mean, they just got really creative. I mean, it was just like, I guess there was oils that they, they must've used that. To, to was it stuff. Trumbull, Douglas Trumbull? Did he work on this? Or yeah. I'm making that up. Yeah. And, and Trumbull, I think has been interviewed um, around the time of tree of life. He used some of the same techniques like oils and chemicals and, you know, photo flat, like, photographic processes and his argument was like yeah 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 you can recreate these things through trickery in the computer but there's a textile like familiarity yet hard to understand component to doing these chemical tricks that makes it feel and we're talking about feel like real film nerds right here yeah. about digital v film but like no there, there is some legitimacy to that like yeah. it is a felt like weirdness yeah like i mean there's stuff that looks like you're just going through another universe another mm-hmm. milky way another you know some there's that one shot where it just seems as if it's like um, just two globs that are just like slowly yeah, stretching yeah. and stretching. And I, you know, to me, it's just educated gas. You're like, oh, he's just traversing from one universe to the next, to the next, to the next. And uh, I mean, it's so effective. Um, I mean, but then it, it also it, it basically encompasses what you get from the very beginning. I mean, just think about some of the opening shots for 2001. It's just these wide open, desolate portraits mm-hmm. of the desert and it's so terrifying yeah. in a way that knowing that there's nothing there there's literally nothing there there's nothing but just barren wastelands this isn't mad max you're not going to find some fucking <laughs> empty ship that's a, a that's off the distance no it's nothing and then you get back to obviously more familiar places like where you're outside earth and you know you're at the moon but and it's kind of this weird sense of comfort that you feel of being surrounded a by technology but then b you're with human beings again and then see that you're at the same time you're also like oh we're at the moon i know where the moon is i know where the, the earth is but you're always held at arm's length from things and you're also being withheld information and you're also the sound design is just mm-hmm. excruciating for a lot of it i mean like that that whole sequence on the moon is just the signal call of the monolith yeah. is so loud and so yeah. genuinely yeah. unsettling yeah. i i i've talked about people with the I've talked with people about this in the past few weeks. 
the that sequence is so genuinely unsettling that this movie being G-rated at any point mm. in history is hysterical. <laughs> What's funny though is like what five minutes before that they're taking a space cab to the yeah. site for five minutes yep. where they're talking about ham sandwiches yeah. <laughs> on a on a space cab. And I actually I'm having a flashback now to an argument in college among people like this is bullshit wasting time like getting to the good stuff. I'm like actually I don't know there is something really kind of you know resonatingly banal about it to mm-hmm. the whole point of like innovation conquest and how we kind of like start to not give a shit until we really are thrust against something we don't fully comprehend. Yeah. Hence the monolith moment right after it. It's a worthy build in my yeah. estimation. And that's, and that's a really interesting point. If you're talking about people not understanding what they're up against until the second they're directly yeah. confronted with it, that's a good way to jump into Barry Lyndon, which is a very <laughs> different kind of photography. So this is John Alcott taking over more fully seven years after 2001. And in the case of Lyndon, you have a lot of tableau. Yeah. You have a lot of very composed, almost still images. Um, Blake, you made a point earlier about it being very painterly in a way. Extraordinarily, and, yeah. And it, it really is. It, a lot of these frames are meant to be drunk in. One in particular I'll expand on a little bit later in the show. But in general, Lyndon asks for a great deal of patience, not just through the way that Tony Lawson, who's the credited editor on the film, cuts it together from a lot of still very... I feel like mm-hmm. stately is a good way to talk about the film Mm -hmm. because it's very composed and yet it's making jokes out of that aggressive composition at the same time (laughs) which is something we really need to talk about because a lot of that deadpan comic sensibility that we were talking about in the first half emerges in a lot of these still again very droll images I mean, um, when we did the Kubrick ranking last year, um, one of the categories that we put together for like for each film entry that we do is the best shot in the movie, which is bullshit that you guys made me do this on Barry Lyndon. But regardless, um, <laughs> like I, because I couldn't make up my mind, I just went with the opening shot because I think like that kind of perfectly exemplifies everything you're talking about. This very uh, detached, distant, perfectly framed, naturally lit shot of two men in the middle of a duel with kind of like the dry uh, voiceover beforehand. Uh, Redmond Barry's father passed away over an unsettled matter, something of that nature, and it just kind of goes into the gunshot, which is so funny mm-hmm. because that is like, you know, that's black comedy 101, yeah. like a little bit of distance and discomfort with it, but a commitment to like seeing the the awkwardness of the joke through. Yeah, it almost reminded me a lot of like um, some of the earlier Robert Altman films. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You kind know? of zoning in like a fly in the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's just a 70s thing. It but could like, be, yeah. Like, um, what's cool about this, if I remember right, and I have the notes in front of me, uh, like uh, Kubrick was obsessed, kind of fetishistic about 17th century painters, like mm-hmm. vintage painters, uh, Gaines, Hogarth, those are the names that yeah. come to mind. And I know somebody can leave comments like, don't forget the following. Um, but uh, like, what's so cool about it is that I feel like you could see literally any frame in this movie within a museum. Easy mm-hmm. praise, but totally mean it because everything has that kind of distinct, uh, you know, architecturally ornate quality, that kind of like patient naturalism, as well as like kind of a look of agony and paleness to all these people that resi- like 
resonates as vintage painting style. Well, and there's a really interesting sense of scale at work in the yes, film because yes. there's a mix of those stark Kubrickian close-ups that are very mm-hmm. much a signature of his style. And then some of these cavernous expenses that actually made me think a lot of his work on Spartacus 15 years earlier, where there are these massive set pieces Mm -hmm. full of actual extras and no trickery, just... As Allison pointed out on the show a couple weeks ago, thousands of people just standing in a field for the sake of one single image. And you get a lot of that photography throughout this in addition to these really claustrophobic images. The fight at the end when Lord Bullingdon just finally can't take anymore (laughs) is so bracing and how raw it feels compared Mm -hmm. to everything else being so composed and so ornate the rest of the film. And then there's there's, um, a Kubrick signature that he used in... um, a clockwork orange during the infamous rape sequence as well, where there's sort of this revolting fisheye on him as he's just sitting on the ground being pummeled Mm -hmm. that really exists at interesting odds with most of the rest of the way the film is photographed. So there's this kind of bracing immediacy to him finally truly getting his in whatever sense that's at odds with a lot of this really composed photography, which I got to throw out there. This was the best cinematography winner for its year. Um, and deservingly so when mm-hmm. you do 70 millimeter telephoto lens imagery of this certain scale and like actually use it use it with visual literacy and wit which is kind of funny that we keep talking about Kubrick cinematography because when we talk about Kubrick cinematography we talk about how we learn to read films at large I feel like like he was able to do it in the cleanest clearest manner possible and for some reason we're all able to immediately intuit oh this is a, a ironic detachment that's why the camera is placed at this place and yeah. the shot yeah yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that uh, playing with... Uh, it, it feels very comic strippy sometimes. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> yeah. you know, because a lot of the painters that he was influenced by, I mean, like Hogarth, like a lot of his uh, paintings have humor in it. You mm-hmm. know, they, they, they kind of take that sort of a humorous uh, intuition that, that you're supposed to glean from a, a lot of these the, the paintings that he did. And you can get that. I mean, I, though, I, I think more of the power leans on the performers because I, I always think what's kind of funny about this movie, and when I say always, I mean the two times I've seen it, um, <laughs> I, is that it, it's the performers all look very similar to uh, like Monty Python uh, characters <laughs> where there, there's this like sort of false certainty with every character. Sorry, there there is like, yeah. there is a certain exaggerated hyper realism to yeah. the meticulous set dressing of it mm-hmm. that I think is also kind of its own deadpan gag. Yeah. Like that's the thing. I think this is essentially Kubrick using studio money to stage a deadpan put on about lavish parlor dramas. Oh, yeah. yeah. I would argue this is funnier than the Monty Python bit of uh, Sam Peckinpah does Victorian era period drama where like a woman gets impaled by uh, like a tennis club or something like that. Not <laughs> all wrong details, but yeah. the idea remains. Like, but there are again those really weird dry flourishes. I mean, again, there's mm-hmm. the revulsion of that. There's the quiet, darkly comic dread of yes. the duel at the end, which oh, God, is yeah. a scene where I mean it's Chekhov's gun taken a step further because you know exactly how that scene is going to end the second it begins 
and the endless yanking you around waiting for you to get to it is for one a really cool editorial choice because I think one of the things that's really great about Lawson's work on this film particular as Mm -hmm. the editor is the way in which in the same way that there's again kind of a comic strip quality to asking you to really drink in the full gravity of every one of these images there is then in turn the choices to let a lot of them play out in long shot and Mm -hmm. in long take because that also helps kind of draw your eye where i mean just a basic facet of watching film is you watch any image long enough you start trying to derive meaning out of it and then that gives it this additional put on level where there's maybe a deliberate lack of meaning that he's fucking around with while inviting you in to watch which i want to jump off mike's point too about like people and we were kind of talking about this in 2001 people as props here they were like spindly caricatures and i was just remembering like the who the fuck was it uh accusing um accusing of uh, barry of being a cuckold that was the first time I found cuck funny since the alt-right movement, by the way. Uh, if we're going to be real here, but, like, the way that he presents, like, very wrinkled, boorish, bewigged people of this period, like, it's almost impossible not to laugh at the wig party that yeah. is this movie. Yeah. Because everybody just looks so, like, ornate and decorated and painfully uh, laced up that you can't help but, like, laugh at their, like, mannered seriousness. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, it, especially just... The, like the, I, I feel he uses that for visual gags repeatedly mm-hmm. in this movie because the way that they, there's a very modern sensibility to their dialogue mm. that's welded into these very ornate style, you know, impressionistic portraits that that he's had here, which is what the joke feels like almost. You know, it feels mm-hmm. like it feels almost like a, um, <laughs> it's it, I mean Mel Mel Brooks does it, but he does it sort of hammy <laughs> effect all the time but this is just like you know what if you could take that mel brooks approach and bring it into a really high end style filmmaking i don't know but no i think it's remarkable and then what's even more remarkable is the five-year jump that's going to see kubrick go from this and as you pointed out blake kind of the mannered the put-upon mannered seriousness of barry linden Segwaying into The Shining, which is going back to our 2001 point of taking claustrophobic spaces and making them feel like you're trapped in the desert. Yeah. Because John Alcott's work, Alcott once again working with Kubrick here, really manages to tie together that theme, arguably the best he ever did it in any of his movies, 2001 perhaps notwithstanding, or at least the ship sequences of that film. In terms of making the Overlook a completely contained space into this arid desert of just emptiness and terror sitting around every corner. So if we're talking about The Shining, I feel like one thing that's really interesting is the way in which for all of some of the genuinely horrifying material on screen, so much of The Shining is about looking away, Mm -hmm. is about reflecting audience attention and then conversely playing with the ways and the moments in which it chooses to not do that. I'm thinking as one particular example, just to start us off, of the Room 237 sequence, where... I was worried you were going to say the Room 237 documentary. I don't want to talk about that. We're not talking about Room (laughs) 37 on this episode. (laughs) Anyway, um, there's not enough time in life or this day. So the Room 237 sequence is really interesting to me, though, because when the shot finally settles 
Now, you're assuming Jack Torrance's perspective in entering the room. And when the shot finally settles on that tub and you watch the curtain be pulled, the hand pull the curtain back, it's another illustration, much like the furry sequence we talked about previously, where I don't have a better name for it. I'm sorry. But anyway, it's another example of you seeing something that you know is not supposed to be there and tapping into that very primal terror of that moment when you realize something is irreparably wrong. Yeah. And there's a lot of that feel hovering over the film at large, that feeling of you are seeing something you're not supposed to see. Slash like it's it's alluring. It's intended to be alluring because it's kind of cribbed in like almost pornographic imagery of enticement. And yet it totally flips it and screws with you by being like, by the way, you are going to be punished for what you just engaged in with Mm -hmm. what happens immediately after. It's kind of a really great nasty trick. It's you're being trapped. It's like almost like yeah. a tractor beam that's pulling you in. And that seems to be with almost every character in this movie. I mean, and you look back at Danny and how he gets go, he, you know, he wanders around curiously throughout mm-hmm. the whole hotel. And it seems to be as if there's just something pulling him at once. And the same thing with Jack, obviously, um, I mean, his own sort of different drives there but uh you I love know, that notion of pull no you're, you're nailing it but yeah like but wendy seems to be at odds at that though she seems yeah. to just happen she seems more happenstance like she she's wandering between the two trying to give some sort of order and some sort of focus mm-hmm. and it seems at that point she's almost being sequestered slowly and slowly and slowly as she's trying to find some sort of order well know? and until the very end of the film she's the only one not being pulled i yeah. mean the shining mm-hmm. pulls both halloran and danny the ghosts of the overlook pull jack mm-hmm. wendy eventually gets roped into that at the very end again in the nightmare ballet sequence yeah. Where she's finally forced to bear full witness to the devils of the Overlook. But by then it almost feels more like a purge, you know, like they're Mm. just trying to get her out, you know, like as if she's she's the problem. She's disrupting the natural order of the Overlook. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is kind of the point the movie ultimately makes as well. Jack gets to stay as soon as she and Danny go home. Mm hmm. But what's kind of cool, and we're still like cinema, cinematography, cinematographically speaking, thank you, mouth mouth over here. Uh, <laughs> like this is a film that also is notorious for not inventing, but kind of like making the steady cam a calling card. Yeah. Um, I guess it's claimed to be like the first mainstream horror movie to use the technique. And for those listening at home, I'm sure steady cam is like, it's what creates those kind of moving camera shots because you have a camera and a tripod normally, but then you have like a stick with a bag of sand at the bottom of it to help you stabilize the camera and allow you to move more freely through the space. Or you have it on a little crane kind of popping off of your chest. So that's how you get these really cool, fluid, super duper fluid shots of like Danny riding his bicycle through the hallways of the hotel or just kind of these very graceful movements. Like the, that whole it, ending. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely graceful and like very refined, but used to kind of present like very startling imagery throughout. So it's again like an operating contrast. Um, but stylistically, like I, it just, yeah, it's so cool how the camera moves because it can linger, it can race. And it just kind of like has this creeping sense of like a hovering ghost almost as mm-hmm. you're an omniscient presence. Well, and Alcott's work here is also kind of a best of montage for yeah, a lot yeah. of Kubrickian hallmarks. You have those unsettling half screen bo- bottom up shots, yeah. looking yeah. up at people in a state of extreme duress that you saw in Clockwork Orange. Yep. Wendy, you have... I'm hurt real bad. Sorry. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, no, genuinely, one of the scariest shots in any of his movies is just Nicholson looking goddamn rabid hanging outside of the freezer door. Yeah. And in a movie full of iconic, terrifying images, 
it's such a subtle one, but it's easily one of the scariest. Mm-hmm. It's okay, though. He gets to have his own, you know, Oreos and peanut butter and crackers and everything on his little satchel bag. <laughs> Again, the Simpsons parody when they do the Halloween episode of The Shining and Homer is told by the ghost, why have you murdered your family? And he's like, can't talk eating. Yeah. As he's like <laughs> running through everything in the fridge. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, God. But there's also a lot. I mean, the use of color. I mean, there isn't. Yeah. There's very rarely a shot, I think, that doesn't have red in it. So I mean, there's that, that sort of that obviously that foreboding that warning which means it's actually a film about native american genocide i'm sorry we're done room 237 did you notice the powder can and the uh, refrigerator Uh, there there? i will say that there are some weird uh references in this movie that that uh, just having rewatched it again at the music box the the ties to native american like icona iconography is very frightening um, in a way that because it's 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 just disarming. You're like, well, there, I feel like he is trying to make some sort of statement with that. I'm not necessarily saying that's what the whole purpose of the movie is, as, as Room Thirty Seven says. But I think that's sort of similar to how he approaches music. Yeah, the way he visually commingles all these different things, even down to what they mention also in the documentary, is the way that the the, the hotel itself doesn't really work. You know the hallways are so yeah. warped. There's a the, the 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 window in Ullman's office shouldn't even be there, and it's a very small, odd window too. And then you have it coupled with that claustrophobic feeling, and then the fact that he brings in that one guy, that's assistant, that just sits. That there is silently. the coolest stuff, yeah. Like, uh, photographically, spatial discontinuity, yeah. little discomforts, and like awkward color choices. I love yeah. that, like the carpets of The Shining have now become an aesthetic yeah. for people you can buy it on a T-shirt, which is insane to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, and and just... if we're talking about, I think that's a really good point because if we're talking about the idea of spatial discontinuity, mm-hmm. this movie mines it for horror in a way that other horror movies have been trying to ape to various degrees of success ever since because that whole idea of things standing where things shouldn't be is such a modern Mm -hmm. horror hallmark that has huge roots in this film because one of the most famous trifectas and it's something that's still taught in film school forever for a reason is not just the sequence with the Grady twins Mm -hmm. but the build up to it Mm -hmm. the two extended tracking shots earlier in the film of Danny riding his tricycle through the winding hallways that amount to nothing well even just the setting of the scene so the scariest shot for me in this whole film uh, or the scariest sequence is when everyone's still at the hotel room um, or the, everyone's still at the hotel and Danny is just playing darts and he turns and the Grady mm. twins are there, which means that the ghosts are still present and omniscient when everyone, everything's still in operation. And for me, that mm. is such a scary feeling of just knowing that like they're always watching. Like it doesn't matter who's here. They are always going to be having an eye, a watchful eye over anyone that they want. Okay, this is terrible to admit. The way you're describing it right now, I never really thought of it that way. And like, I'm getting goosebumps on the back of my neck. Like, oh God, I don't want to go to a hotel ever again then. If you can't contain the ghost during the season. Yeah, I mean, there's not. And then they're always there. It's just like. And aside from Danny's premonition at the very beginning of the film, it's the first time in the movie where you are availed of the fact very clearly that something is wrong. Yes, yeah. And what's also. the great party guy showed up at the beginning. Though. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that would have been great. He comes in, he's like, oh, great dots. Uh, the, the one thing that's also kind of interesting about this film that I've thought about with regards to why a lot of those branding pieces are so big when they're in the freezer or the pantry or whatever is that I think it almost ties into how Kubrick was able to convey horror. 
he looked at it from a psychological standpoint. I mean, like mm. colors are so important in this movie. And I think that when he came into this film, he said, all right, well, how are we going to make a terrifying movie? All right, we're all going to tap into the psychological consciousness. Like, think of it the same way that marketing taps into us. Like, you know, I'm a kid of the 80s. So, like, I, if, I, if I see yellow and red, it's going to, I want McDonald's or like, you know, these certain tans that I want. Oh, I thought it was Ivan Drago, but uh. yeah, it is Ivan Drago also. (laughs) Um, But with this, I I really do feel that as if he really approached this film from a psychological standpoint and how he focused more on that than actual narrative. Because I mean, if you think about it, the narrative itself is so simple. It's just, okay, a family with the troubled family comes into this hotel he doesn't have to even come up with the mythology of it i mean the book is filled with the mythology of the hotel which is one of my least favorite parts about it because i don't want to know the mythology of the hotel it's scarier when you don't know and you just uh, when you when you throw it with the roaring 20s which is a time where humanity and culture is just at its craziest and the, the zenith of just sexuality at that point because everyone's just behind closed doors drinking having yeah. fun they're like ooh let's let's just go let's have a wild drunken fuck fest like that's <laughs> Literally what Kubrick just puts there. That, that, there's nothing else there. There's no other history. Whereas like, and it's funny because like, apparently there was a cut scene from the book that they obviously burned. Um, <laughs> but where he, Jack finds this, the, the scrapbook of like everything that happens. And you can actually see the scrapbook next to his uh, typewriter. If you look at the, scr- the scene, like when he's, when Wendy first comes in, mm-hmm. uh, you could actually see the scrapbook there, which is interesting. But I'm just glad that that wasn't in this because the less, you know, the better in this situation. Instead, it just becomes all aesthetics. That well, right. Like there's a rich history of haunted house films before this yeah. or spooky motels or omniscient, like uh, ominous presences. But the defining characteristic, like not only the aesthetic, but the way the aesthetic informs the psychological leanings. Like you're right. The details are kind of like, you know, in or out. You take them with a grain of salt. Yeah. The presence of this film, the foreboding mood, and that has like everything to do with the the sound and image of it, yeah. like kind of getting you really tuned up for the, the slaughter, as it were. Well, it's just there always just seems as if you're not seeing something there yeah like even with like random like god it's so this is so ridiculous but i remember when re-watching the sequences over and over again because i watched this as a kid there's a there's a there's a scene where wendy's working in the boiler room and it's jack's having nightmares but you hear him screaming off in the distance but you don't hear it until wendy hits a lever or something and it, it hands over and it focuses on the boiler room and you hear like screaming right after she hits the lever so in my head i used to always just think is like oh maybe she activated a memory that happened like there was a, something oh. that exploded here or something that went crazy here or something like that which is actually kind of funny because in the book the boiler does explode and that's where jack is but i there was just little things that that i would put bring to these shots because they're not showing you a lot they're literally just it i mean they are showing you a lot but they're it's just so there's a lot of it's so confounding and because I, the film is very much actively inviting that scrutiny. And yeah, you can yeah. say that of a yeah. lot of Kubrick's work, but I think it has a very particular dramatic function here. Yeah. You're being asked to look because a lot of the shots, especially a lot of those semi distant perspective shots following people through the hotel. Yeah. You're kind of put not in the place because when I was younger, I always used to think that Wendy was supposed to be sort of the audience proxy. But now Kubrick is. Yeah. And I very much see that Kubrick is wandering through watching you watch these people run around. I know I've spent a lot of time on the show trying to reject the whole rat in a maze (laughs) idea, but I think down to the maze climax, this is the most literal example of (laughs) it. Yeah. 
Which is funny because it's not even in the original book. And it's not. The book has a far more Hollywood ending than the movie, which is mm-hmm. always the wildest thing about it. Which, mm-hmm. quick thing to watching it as a child, um, you know, this is the only movie uh, that ever gave me nightmares growing up. Oh, really? Seeing all the Nightmare on Elm Street, seeing the original Halloween, no, seeing Sunset Stuff, the only movie that ever gave me a nightmare. And that, it also taps into another thing we've kind of danced around, the, the fear of your family trying to kill you. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm pretty sure I had a nightmare about uh, um, Jack Nicholson chasing me with an axe. So, yeah, only, only fucking movie that scared me. And, and I consider myself reasonable. So. I, I consider this the scariest film for me. Yeah. Other yeah. than maybe Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But because that's... much like that film, a lot is left to implication yep. and it crawls under your skin yeah. in a way that kind of diminishes that it's just a movie detachment in a way that the great horror films can transcend. Yeah. But listen, we can stand here all day if I don't cap us somewhere. So I want to move us on. Before we get out of talking cinematography, I want... Your single favorite shot from these three movies. I'll start since that's a terrible task. I actually want to go with, I knew I was going to do something from Barry Lyndon, but I actually want to change my pickup to the very opening shot of Barry Lyndon, which is Barry Lyndon's father Mm -hmm. dying on a hill in a duel, (laughs) which is not only a perfect and brutally ironic tone setter for where the film will end up, because Barry carries this whole grand notion of dying as his father did in the Gloria battle and is staunchly denied that by the end because he can't even die well. But I think it also sets this tone. Both of the deadpan comedy of the film with all like the bumbling around that the duel itself requires. But then there's also this really genuine stark expression of despair in that shot because you have a man who from his very inception was fated to fail was fated to disappear. There is a lack of dignity to it that really hangs heavy over a lot of that movie. And I just want to throw this, I have to do this, because like if you're talking about the opening shot, you got to talk about the narration, because it's symbiotic, and if this doesn't feel right, we can cut, whatever. Uh, but I love those opening lines from the narrator, who's a total like roaster, a total shit-talker for the movie, because he's fully aware of like how like ridiculous these people are. So what is it? Barry's father had been bred like many other young sons of a genteel family to the profession of the law. And there is no doubt he would have made an eminent figure in his profession. And then the duelists cock their guns and shoot each other, but one collapsed. Had he not been killed in a duel yeah. which arose over the purchase of some horses, which is like yeah. so fucking <laughs> yeah. funny. Yeah. yeah. That is so good. It's I'm very, sorry I had to pull that. It's like almost you could see where Wes Anderson yes. totally gets yes. his humor too. Um, which is, yeah. That, I mean, that, and that sets this, the tone for the whole movie. I mean, if you don't see it as a comedy after that, it's... Yeah. Know. But anyway, so that's my take. What? Where do you two land? Blake, kick us off. Sure, and I, I already rambled enough about it because it was a series of shots, but, like, the Jupiter Beyond the Infinite sequence, um, like, I, I've, you know, kind of broke down the form and, like, my curiosities, my assurances, then my doubts over what I was actually looking at and how it still hypnotizes me. And to, I haven't really shared, like the first time I saw 2001, I was six years old uh, in my brother's college dorm. He had it on VHS and my dad and I were staying at, um, uh, within his dorm because it's cheaper than a hotel. No, um, <laughs> he's like, 
uh, Blake, you got to check this out, which is the cool thing about having a Gen X brother. Sometimes he uh, makes your taste in music and movies a little outside the times. But um, I remember watching it and just being absolutely hypnotized, like unsure of what I just kind of witnessed. And I've seen that movie so many times since seeing it at six in different formats, different venues, different styles, all this sort of stuff. But I keep like jumping back to the Jupiter and the Beyond the Infinite sequence where it's like just one of my absolute favorite. I Not to sound pompous, but we are talking about Kubrick. It is the series of shots in a sequence that I would consider just a total film. Pure aesthetics, vision, sound, kind of a perfect marriage of all the things I like and dig about movies in general. Um, and if you want to do a little bit of extra credit homework, uh, I like the, the the duo, the French electronic duo Justice, and their video on and on. They do direct visual allusions to the Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite sequence in a way that I've never seen anyone like respect or come close to in that fashion. I just think it's super duper cool. So on and on by Justice, check it out. Uh, but anyways, yeah, no, that I that it's good stuff. It's good stuff. For me, I gotta I gotta rep the Shining. <laughs> the King Kids gotta rep the Shining because uh, I, I mean honestly, I could I could list about a half dozen from 2001 and just it's but i actually think finding one particular shot or lasting image for 2000 is really hard um but uh, yeah i mean for for me for the shining though i just that shot of (laughs) that shot of jack staring outside while his you know his family's playing and you see like you know just the the fireplace you know brewing it's just i mean such an iconic sequence and Mm. but the thing that's really stuck with me over these years and it's funny that you mentioned twister dom because i actually hadn't seen the shining uh before i went to go see twister and i remember just seeing that random sequence without not know with not knowing anything about the movie really like chilled me to the bone in fact i couldn't even think about anything else that was going on in the movie when i saw it in theaters it was literally just like i just kept wondering like what the fuck was that movie like, they were playing <laughs> at the drive-in and there's just for me, there's, I think, you know, horror movies are hard. It's why I always roll my eyes when someone says this is the scariest movie since The Exorcist or yada, yada, yada. Because it's so, like, I feel like with, with any genre, everything's subjective, obviously. But when it comes to horror, horror is so personal. It's so, what has previously conditioned you to be, to give you anxiety, to, to give you some sort of tension, terror. And for me, I... I don't know. There's something about long that that long distance, something something like staring at you from a very long distance, and obviously the duality of that with the twins is just when Danny first goes there, coupled with the music, it just it's still. I mean, I know this is such an easy shot to throw out there, but it's still like I I think that's a reason why it's so iconic for so you know for so long, um, and it's certainly surpassed anything that king's put to paper for the shining <laughs> somehow it just has become like when people think of the shining they think of these two twins and there's just something so fucking terrifying about that shot and, and it's not even the cross cutting with the blood and everything like that doesn't even do anything for me it's just it's the concept of knowing that nothing is supposed to be there you round the corner and there are two people that are standing at the other end like just staring at you and they are waiting for you that is so scary to me and for me it's like i don't I don't know. I can't. I'll never shake that. I'll it, never shake that. For it's the, the primal life. terror of that sequence in David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, mm-hmm. in which the gentleman recounts his dream in the diner, yeah. his terrible nightmare. You get a genuine sense of the trembling terror he feels about this nightmare. And then you slowly follow him around the corner until that nightmare is made manifest. Yeah. It's that inarticulate feeling 
of your worst fears being confirmed in an instant. Buddy of mine who's literally doing his PhD on David Lynch right now articulated as such. He's like, it is fear through discomfort. It is fear through like proximity and the Mm -hmm. realization that your personal space will be violated. But it is fear. It is absolute fear. Also, twins are creepy with apologies to my wife who's a twin. But uh, (laughs) uh, yeah, no, it's it's amazing. Those are awesome choices. And I I would agree. And if we're talking about awesome choices, that's a good way to jump into music because you both alluded to throughout this episode how Kubrick, by this point in his career, is doing a lot of audio montage with his soundtracks rather than having actual original scores. He's doing a lot of compositional assembly in terms of the sounds he's putting together for each of these movies. And if we're jumping into 2001, I mean... Actually, where I want to start with 2001 is once more talking about watching it in a theatrical space. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's just where my head is at because of recency. But I also think it's critical to the experience because as we've alluded to, 2001 is deafening, whether it's the musical cues, whether it's some of the audio production, whether it's just the sheer wall trembling scale of just the sonosphere of the film. It's overwhelming in every way by design. You know what's crazy though in the the note I've seen this a couple different ways as I previously mentioned, but uh, the two that immediately come to mind. I the recent one. I want to make this comparison. The recent uh, retouch that they did um, at the music box, the unrestored version, and I've seen it live with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra doing the entire score. They even had like 15 people in the back row doing all the creepy choral humming. And that was the thing. Both were completely different experiences. I still get the same vibe off of this movie every time I see it. Like I'm still kind of brought into magic mystery of unknown and in broad terms but completely different sensations, audibly speaking. Because when I saw the 70 millimeter recently, like it was deafening, it was cacophonous, it was it was freaky as hell. Because like I've never heard the buzzer ring that loudly. There are notes in the Beyond the uh, Infinite sequence that I actually wasn't able to hear because the sound mix was so rattling over itself. When I saw it with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, it was... It was elegant. It was refined. It was it was magic, like and I don't think either feeling was wrong to it, but it was just kind of curious that like it's a great case study, and this is again nerd shit, uh, in like what your sound mix, what your audio can do to the overall impression and feel. Because when I saw it with the C or the CSO, I was like moved to tears because I felt like I'd been transported. Whereas the the music box uh, redo recently, I was like trembling with fear and almost had to cover my ears because I was like nervous as hell about where I was going. And it still worked either way. Well, and that overwhelm is integral to the way that the film comes across because there's a sense of genuine grandeur that comes across from that. Down to, if we're talking about 2001 parodies, there's arguably no more (laughs) instantly recognizable than also Sprach Zarathustra over the film's opening credits. Because not only is it the sound of discovery and probably the best pro wrestling entrance theme of all time, it's also... Nature Boy! Yeah, sorry. (laughs) It's also this moment of... It's also this moment of it's the dawn of man made manifest through sound. It's an incredible use of archival music as much as anything. And what's cool to the archival thing, like Kubrick had a score. He brought on Alex North, who I write if I recall correctly, he did the score for Mm -hmm. Spartacus, brought him on for two thousand one, then was like, "Mm, I'm gonna go with all the temp music I used, which is apparently a serious problem now. We can talk about Michael Mann and how he like uses tons of stuff. Yeah, and eventually like. Like, ask for 20 minutes from a composer that he'll never use. Um, 
Kubrick kind of like, I guess, is the progenitor of this like wishy-washy temp music trend where he basically like he gets the movie into the stratosphere with the simple use of uh, also Strack. And really, if you kind of look at it from like a simplistic standpoint, it's just three sliding images kind of moving into perspective. But the music gets you the hell Mm -hmm. over in a way that I can't like I still can't put into good words, you know. Well, and there's also a lot of really interesting dissonant tones throughout the film. That was another takeaway rewatching it recently because we're in an era of filmmaking present day where composers like Johnny Greenwood are really starting to mess around with sonic dissonance a lot as sort of a audio aesthetic and as sort of a score approach. Um, Michael Levi's work on Under the Skin is another great example of this. But it was kind of cool. And there will be blood when the music tries to chase itself. Like there are different notes mm-hmm. at different scales. Even yeah. Dunkirk last summer kind of did that with two violins competing to keep up with each other. This is a perfect metaphor for a scene. Yeah, Absolutely. that's so cool. But for a film in 1968 to experiment with that kind of sonic palette is all the more remarkable because yeah. this is not how scores were done. We talked about a couple weeks ago, Alex North's work on Spartacus, which is the epitome of an old Hollywood <laughs> score all strings omnipresent over nearly every scene of the film yeah and imagining how different work like that would have made 2001 is staggering and in the same way you can't really divorce barry linden then from its core sound which is much more specific here this is handel's saraband which you may know as the theme of this particular podcast series as well And it's used a number of times throughout Barry Lyndon to sort of denote different moments, the passage of time. The different versions of it that he uses throughout almost become chapter stops of a kind. Because you go from this sparse, this very kettle drum rendition Mm -hmm. over the early an early scene of the film to it expanding later on there are different movements of the song to illustrate where you are spatially within the story and it's a really interesting use of it which is hilarious because this is all public domain music that he's using even by this point right so and it's it's like a greatest hits not only is sarah band like the more or less the unofficial theme to this film this movie won the academy award for best adapted screenplay which is hysterical to me or sorry not screenplay i'm dumb uh score a uh, best adapted score for leonard roseman uh roseman and like he won an oscar just for like you could argue that he's just using old cues but he's using them so well and so wittily that's and so the creatively. thing it's all irish folk standards and classic compositions and you've got Vivaldi, you've got Schubert, you've got Bach, like you've got all the greatest hits of like a fancy, like, I feel like it almost informs the language of like snooty parties and modern comedy movies. Like I could hear some of this music playing when Ace Ventura goes to a mansion in the first <laughs> one or something. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's kind of perfect in that sense, like lighten up guys. Well, because if we're reading Barry Lyndon as a modernist take on a period story, mm-hmm. then using music in that way, and especially by the seventies was a huge hallmark of Kubrick. I mean, right before this was Clockwork Orange, which is all about manipulating classical music through a modern lens for the sake of story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, No, and it's but also in a kind of a simple way, it's just pretty, too. Mm -hmm. Like it goes down very smoothly. (laughs) No, it's it's a really interesting take on that. Well, and if we're talking about 
Barry Lyndon as kind of a function of montage in terms of the assembly of the sound of it, then we can say very much the same for The Shining, Mm -hmm. which assembles a very different set of sounds. But similarly to 2001 is messing around with a lot of those dissonant tones in a similar way. Yeah. I mean, when you want to talk about creating atmosphere, obviously music is a big part of that for 2001. But I think it's incredibly paramount for The Shining. I think majority of the scares, the dread, the tension, literally the feeling and aesthetic of the hotel, as much as those wild tapestries that are on the wall and those huge giant rooms that were modeled off of two or three different hotels, as much as that plays into a huge part of that sense of location and feeling, mm-hmm. the sounds from like Ligeti and Bartok, Bartow or ba- is it Bella, Bella Bartok? Um, yeah, I have it open real but quick. Like, you know, Bella Bartok. We'll Bella... just go really, really thick with the terrible accent. Apologies, <laughs> but like the the, I mean, just some of the, the stuff from Penderecki yeah. is just just really, really jarring to the point where he he chooses compositions that are slowly like they build and they stir. They stir enough where that you can can kind of just like soak with it until you're stuck. And it just is going to prod you again and again and again. And it's just, it's so, um, it's classical in the sense because that's matching the sort of regal, like the regal nature of the hotel itself. But then they, every slightly, no, every, every composition slightly turns to the Mm -hmm. left and for the, like for the, for the horrific, you know, and it's in those moments that Kubrick uses to his advantage when he obviously he just all of a sudden just punctures the screen with like horrors and stuff. Well, and it's really interesting because that's a transposition of kind of a theme that King gets at in the book. My favorite scene in the novel that doesn't make it into the film, probably because there wasn't CGI yet, yeah. is the sequence where Danny finds the music box playing mm-hmm. the Blue Danube, yeah. and then the ballerinas performing inside the music box start engaging in explicit sex acts. Yeah. And it's this really unsettling image that has always stuck with me from the book, even though I haven't read it in years, because that's the kind of dread that Kubrick's trafficking in Mm -hmm. throughout the film. It's this idea of watching old standards curdle and collapse. I think a really interesting thing, and this goes back to his 1950s work and our discussion of some of Gerald Freed's work on Kubrick's very early movies, Um, it was always using even just stock jazz sounds like Mm. 20, like old 20th century jazz sounds for the sake of dread, which is something he returns to in the shining to really powerful effect. But then at the same time up against a lot of these standards or these perversions of like old big band sounds, which in its own way is really thematically applicable to where the shining eventually goes. You also have Wendy Carlos's opening theme, which before a single character is visible, before a thing has happened in the film, immediately immerses you in the tone of it. Yeah. You know, and can I, I want to actually um, do a point of comparison too. So we've got Ligeti, we've got uh, Penderecki, uh, Penderecki uh, um, and uh, all these great like vintage composers who like kind of specialize in guttural sounds and ominous tones and things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, the importance of them is how they're used, how they're we're allowed to listen to them, hear them. And the reason I mention this is because one of the things that immediately comes to mind, because I love dumping on this movie with apologies to Marty Scorsese, so I'll blame Robbie Robertson, who is music supervisor. <laughs> 
Shutter Island oh, uses yeah. yeah. Shutter Island uses um, Ligeti, uses mm-hmm. Pendere- Penderecki, even has the right idea, uses some John Cage, John Adams, Brian Eno, like masters of mood music. Yeah. But it's just, it's like, it's 50 different cues from different mood musicians kind of layered on as texture. It's like yeah. no different from how you would listen to music in a CSI episode. Oh, totally. Whatever. And there's no room for focus or that music to breathe. Shining, like uncomfortably places those tunes into your ear and it's just so cool like they they all feel as if they could be a part of the era that is trying to basically eke out of the uh, the overlook hotel yeah and that's something that is what oh god it it adds to the mythology Mm -hmm. again it's like that idea that you're not going to know everything about the mythology but you're going to get hints of it and that the music is a huge part of that absolutely um and and for me it's it's one of those things where it's I, you had mentioned like yeah like the the use of it is so key in in the placement of it is too and and you know Dom it's funny that the thing that you mentioned with, like, with the book one of the biggest horrors of the book also is this is what's not seen also uh, there's a sequence where Danny's playing outside in the playground um, and there's this weird uh, sort of tunnel that he is kind of scared of like he's in the tunnel then he realizes that like uh, something could be in here. And he like immediately gets out and then he looks back and you never see what's in the tunnel. You just know that there's just like this kind of pitch black sort of hole and you and you know that there's something there. Isn't the power kind of, of suggestion so much cooler than a jump scare exactly. too? Like cat people, it's all shadows yeah. and noises in the background. The original cat people like oh, gets it. works so well with that same magic mind. No, I love that you're picking like and it's showing that, yeah. And and then that, and that's what you get here. I mean, you really do. I mean, if you think about it, yeah. They show a lot in this movie, but they really don't show a lot in this movie too. I mean, for the most part, a lot of this composition sound like just like the humming of an AC unit or something <laughs> like that. It's really kind of haunting. yes, it's an AMSR video, just <laughs> mood noises of a hotel yeah, until shit goes bad. Exactly. <laughs> I, I just I, I don't know. There's I I would actually place the sounds of this film above the actual visuals in terms of why this is terrifying um, for me. Well, absolutely. It's that sense of, and to that point of a quiet hum, it turns horror into almost a subconscious level function Mm -hmm. where you're unsettled long before anything is actually happening. And actually on that same basis, I want to kind of lead us into our final discussion for the day, because again, we could stay here talking about Kubrick for hours, but I want to kind of condense into looking at in context of our theme for this week, what can we take away from how Kubrick understands man being pushed to extremity? How, what can we take away about Kubrick's perception of people when they're pushed to their outer limits? Oh, God, man's extreme. I mean, back to our whole reach exceeding grasp and vice versa earlier. I mean, these three films... Um, And it's kind of hard because we have to differentiate between the thematic, uh, like the function of these films versus the production, because really it it operates equally in the terms of extremes. No one produced or filmed or shot films in this fashion. And people still don't do that. Like, so Kubrick is pushing himself to certain human extremes. Like you mentioned, Interstellar earlier had the courage to to try and use silence within space, but then also gets nervous and introduces different ambient noises while clever doesn't quite have that like sartorial like insane focus that Kubrick has and the patience of the shots in Barry Lyndon or the the willingness to be uncomfortable in The Shining so he pushes he pushes to the limit of function and form in ways that we still are kind of like chicken about in a lot of modern filmmaking 
I, I think it's interesting that, and this is kind of what happened when we were we were going over the dramas for Anderson, mm. is that there almost seems to be a through line between these three films. You know, you have 2001, this idea of the unknown. The unknown that's pertinent to, you know, you connect that with the meaning of life or what why we're here. And in between, you have Barry Lennon of this <laughs> pursuit of something that you can't have. It's this... And when you have it, there's still something that's just not there. It's just chasing something that you're never going to get or that you're never going to have. And maybe that's life. Maybe that's just how it is. And then you have The Shining, which seems to be some sort of wish fulfillment about you never really get a grasp. I mean, it's like he wants he wants acceptance in a, in a, certain, a certain way. He wants that sort of sophistication. He wants to rise above whatever sort of ills that he's currently had. And maybe that means brushing off his family or whether it means being entertained and regaled with like everyone at the hotel, finally having that sort of, um, that sort of credit, that sort of uh, livelihood or, you know, that, but I, I think all three movies deal with this like pursuit of something that you're not going to be able to get, that you're not going to be able to find and that you're not, that's, that's just larger than you. That's that's that will always be larger than you, and I think they're all existential dilemmas for all three of them. And you know, you get the farcical look at it, in Barry Lyndon. Uh, you get the traumatic look at it in The Shining, and I think you get the more meditative approach of it with 2001. I don't necessarily think the ending of 2001 is scary or damning. I think there's something enlightening about it. I think it's what you can. I mean, I'm sure Buddhists can take that and run with it in terms of achieving, you know, um, uh, higher learning or you know. A, well, and I think going off of that, too, what you then get in all of those films, if we're talking commonality, is this sense that the reason we will never find the thing we are chasing is ultimately always going to be ourselves. Mm -hmm. Whether it is the literal devils within you in The Shining, whether it is the inability to transcend the inherent limits of your humanity in 2001, or in Barry Lyndon, whether it's just you're an asshole and life <laughs> gives you everything that you deserve— in all of those cases, human, well, again, hubris, arrogance, the simple folly of man, to Blake's point, is exactly what's going to stop us from getting the things that we pursue. Yeah. And if you want to take this to an extra textual place with Kubrick again, Kubrick has Leon Vitale long after his death still trying to preserve his precise exacting vision <laughs> of what film art should be. I gotta even, get around to that. Yeah. Even after his death, Kubrick is still pursuing this yeah. impossible ideal of the perfect movie in so many words. And I think in a lot of respects, you know, maybe that's where we leave it. That to a director like Kubrick, for better and worse alike, indeed, that that was the zenith of filmmaking mm -hmm. was the pursuit of absolute perfection when one person cannot possibly manage it. Yeah. You know, there's a million ways we could try to ring out the grand finale of filmography Stanley Kubrick, but no one of them would feel truly faithful to the spirit of his work. But in our eight plus hours here, we've given it our best shot. We thank you dearly for listening. All of you who have tuned in, who have, God forbid, referred this to a friend. We are genuinely grateful. This is a labor of love for all of us here at Filmography. So thank you for listening. Um, thank you to Cap Blackard, our 
Consequence Podcast Network producer who puts more back into making these shows the best possible thing that they can be for all of you. Thanks to Stanley Kubrick and everyone that he put through hell for all of it. (laughs) Thank you for continuing to support us. And please stay tuned to our Facebook again, facebook.com slash filmography podcast, because not only will we be soliciting word once again about who you might want to hear us talk about in future installments of filmography, but before we return in September with our next full session, we have some other announcements coming down the pipeline that you're going to find really exciting, we hope. So stay tuned to that. As always, again, please Leave us a review on iTunes or Podchaser if you can. If you've liked what you've heard here, please tell a friend. Word of mouth is how we're getting out to the masses at this stage of our young, young existence. But we're really excited about the future of the show, and we hope you'll continue to join us. You can find me on Twitter again at Mayer. You can also find all of my work at Consequences Sound, where again, I am the current acting film editor. Blake, where can the goodly people of the internet find your work? Uh, they can find me here uh, on filmography. Uh, filmography. You can find me on Twitter at Blake Goebel. That's one B in Goebel. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and you can find me at Consequences Sound, uh, Metacritic, Rotten Tomatoes, and uh, Asleep on my couch. And you can find me at uh, The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, and uh, Halloweenies. A limited edition, that I keep calling limited edition, uh, podcast that's going to be running once a month leading up to David Gordon Green and Danny McBride's not confusing at all titled Halloween, which means we'll finally have three movies called Halloween in the last 40 years. Unbelievable. So Just call it New Halloween. like Compelling new stuff. Yeah. We, we've been calling it Hallow Green uh, for, for David Gordon Green's <laughs> thing, but it, that's been a fun podcast. We're going to be talking about Halloween 6. With my boy uh, Tommy Doyle, a.k.a. Paul Steven Rudd. Uh, Very excited about that. And then also, if you're in Chicago or want to go to Chicago or are near Chicago or think that Chicago is a cool place because Michael Wilbon once called it the greatest place to be in the summer, then you might want to come over to the Windy City and enjoy some horror movies. But specifically Stephen King because... We're taking you to Castle Rock. Right two days after Hulu's Castle Rock drops... We are going to uh, take you back, <laughs> and uh, we're going to be watching some great movies. Stand by Me, Cujo. Um, we got Needful Things. We got The Dead Zone. We got the black and white version of The Mist. We have The Dark Half. Stephen Weber Shining. No, Damn. not Stephen Weber Shining. We, we, we maybe we'll have a, a an edit of all the all the, uh, the Jack uh. quotes. From Stephen Weber. That'll be a lot of fun. And then we'll, cu- we'll, we'll splice it in with that episode of Wings or something. Oh, that's going to be um, so much fun. It'll be great. But yeah. yeah, come on out. This will be a lot of fun. And uh, yeah. Real quick, where are people coming to in Chicago for oh, this yes. event? It's at the Chicago's Music Box Theater, located on Southport and Addison for the most part. Um, so if you want to just uh, go over there to the Southport Quarter, you'll see a lot of Cubs fans and... You can move past and get into Horrorville Central, and uh, we'll have fun. So again, we'll see you at the end of July at the Music Box yeah, for July. Welcome to Castle Rock. Greetings from Castle Rock, July 27th to July 28th, Friday and Saturday, at Chicago's Music Box Theater. And as again, we'll be back in September with the next full session of filmography. As far as who it'll be about, stay tuned. Beyond the bond. <laughs> 
I've been locked into filmography yonder bond. But again, we are not anywhere close to the only Consequence Podcast Network production in addition to Halloweenies and The Losers Club, both of which Mike has already mentioned. There is also This Must Be the Gig, Lior Phillips' ongoing music series where she interviews artists about some of their favorite live performances. We also have TV Party, Clint Worthington and Allison Shoemaker's weekly recap podcast of the best of television on which I am also a regular contributor. In addition, now that filmography is calling it quits for the summer, we're going to be stepped in by Discography, our sister series here on Consequence Podcast Network. So we're real excited about that one. And stay tuned to Consequence of Sound and Consequence Podcast Network for more new and interesting material. Uh, Dom, is this a secret bonus ending now where we acknowledge that this podcast required three months of re-recording because of your very demanding technique? We've actually reported, recorded this podcast over 200 times. This is the 201st. I've cried so much today, but you won't hear that. <laughs> Mr. Mayor, I don't know what you want from me. <laughs> <laughs> Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television productions at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer. Thank you again to all of you for listening, and we'll see you in the fall. Consequence Podcast Network.